And I just feel much better that we're actually live right now. That was not a fun few minutes. Thank you for everyone, uh, to everyone for sticking with us. Uh, very much appreciate that. We're going to bring in our first guest. Griffs, you ready for, for guest number one in the evening? Our guest number one is with the uh, Young Game Chamber Care Foundation. He's an associate and friend of Marcus Smart. His name is Kenny Warren, and we're very, very thankful to have him on this broadcast. Here he is, Kenny. What's up, guys? How you doing? Kenny, we're, <laughs> we're so grateful to have you and for your cooperation and collaboration with this drive. Could you tell us a little bit about what Young Game Changer does in the community and what Marcus aims to do with her? You bet. Uh, the, the foundation, the YGC Foundation, uh, YGC stands for Young Game Changer. Um, way back when Marcus was drafted and really in his Oklahoma State years, he kind of was into this thing about changing the game and the way that the game was, he wanted to see the game play, the game of basketball. And it was really focused on kids and with youth. And so it actually started with his Instagram tag, which was uh, Young Game Changer, which you probably know off his Instagram. From that, when he got drafted, um, we kind of ran with it with a brand, the brand of Young Game Changer. And so through that branding, uh, it became kind of a three-headed monster. Um, one of the three heads of that was um, his AAU program. He had a kind of an AAU team uh, that still exists today. Uh, and then he had the camps uh, that we run in the summer, the kids' camps. And then the third was the charity. He wanted to start something, uh, a charitable foundation that would help underprivileged kids or kids that were sick. That was kind of the two focuses of that. Um, and through that, the Young Game Changer Foundation was formed. Um, Bill and Aaron, Bill Wilk and Aaron run that. They're kind of the management company that runs the Young Game Changer Foundation that targets um, kids. And the two target areas of kids that the whole foundation targets is um, kids that are sick, um, you guys probably know, and I know pretty much all of Boston knows the backstory of of Marcus's mom and his family that has gone through quite a bit of of tragedy with cancer. Uh, his oldest, Marcus's older brother Todd, oldest brother Todd, and um, of course his mom as of late. Um, so he really wanted some of that YGC, as we'll call it, um, charity work to go towards hospitals, um, and so. Him being in Boston, it just made sense to do a lot of that work with Boston Children's Hospital. And so um, we do work with uh, the Boston Children's Hospital. Um, quite a bit of stuff is actually fixing to be announced in the next uh, couple of weeks. Some more stuff that, that's going on with the hospital there. And then the other part of it is just with kids in general, not kids that are necessarily sick, but kids that are underprivileged from a financial standpoint, um, urban kids, urban city kids, um, kids of color, people of color that um, need help. And so he has uh, used a lot of his time and his effort and the foundation to, and this is more recently that we're doing this, to target um, youth basketball in urban areas. And specifically, we're starting to work with the Dallas-Fort Worth area. We haven't done anything in Marcus's home area, charity-wise, uh, in Dallas. So that's our next target area. And so the fact that this has been going on, that um, that you guys have sparked this charity deal is really, really cool because it's popping up at the exact perfect time uh, to use this money that's going to be donated um, towards, it's going to be basketball, inner city basketball at the Dallas-Fort Worth area and in the Boston area. So um, 
specifics, we don't know that yet. That's a brainstorm between me, Marcus, Bill, Aaron, Marcus's agent, uh, Phil Forte, uh, another close-knit person in, in our circle. Um, but it, it definitely will go to kids. Anybody that knows smart, it's all about kids. And so uh, this is a really cool deal. So I, I, hopefully that gives you a very quick um, overview of just kind of the the YGC Foundation and what's it what's it what its purpose is, which is to ultimately serve kids uh, in one way or the other. Hey, Kenny, where? I was going to say, you know, you mentioned much much earlier in the in your answer about about Marcus getting drafted. You coached him in, in, in high school. At what point did, did at what point did you know that Marcus Smart was was going to be drafted? Like, was it, it, how different was he from all the kids you've seen over the years? Uh, that's a tough question because the, the team that I, you know, I met Marcus coming out of his eighth grade year when he came into our high school where I was coaching at and he, he, he played on a really good ball club. I mean, he had some really good players around and we, we won the state championship back to back and almost won it back to back to back his sophomore, junior and senior year. So we had a really, really good ball club. We went, uh, and I think in a three year stretch there, his sophomore, junior, senior year, we went 115 and six. So that's a pretty good pretty good record and we played a national schedule a lot of our most of our games were on a lot of our games were on ESPN so um I, I can't truthfully look at you and say that I knew he was going to be in the NBA when he was a, I, I don't think anybody knew that Marcus was um a guy that flew under the radar uh you know he's not some six eight guy um he just kind of did what he's he's ne he's always been the guy that he's been the player that he is now is not a whole lot different from a standpoint of blue collar, nitty gritty, uh, do things that nobody else wants to do type player. But, um, you know, when he graduated after we won our second state championship, it was pretty obvious that he had something special, uh, and that he would be playing in the league. If we would, I don't think anyone could have truthfully told you that he would be a lottery pick though. Um, so, uh, me and him actually had that discussion about playing in the NBA. I, you know, I, we were sitting at the back of the gym after the, his senior year season, um, just me and him having a combo at night. It was after open gym. And I was like, you know, you're going to play in the league, right? And it's just kind of a funny talk that we had had. Um, but to say that he would have gone the position that he went on, went on in the lottery. Um, I don't think anyone really knew that was, was going to be that crazy of a, of a fire. It just happened so fast. Now, Kenny, if, uh, I mean, Marcus's heart and soul and, approach to basketball is what endears him so much to this community and so many people is there like an insight into Marcus that maybe people don't know that you've uh, you've seen in your interactions and in life with him that really kind of would help us know more about him um I mean I could tell you a ton of stories I, I think what makes Marcus so unique and people gravitate towards him from a fan standpoint is that every fan kind of relates to him um you know, the NBA can be a very selfish league. Um, it's just, it's a business and, you know, um, it's just, it can be very selfish at times. Marcus is such, and his play is so indicative of non-selfishness. I mean, he, he does things that you really just don't see in the NBA. I mean, you don't see guys take, uh, you know, on average a charge every other game. Marcus has no problem taking charges, uh, diving on loose balls, earning, you guys up in Boston gave him a nickname a, a year or two ago. Like, I think y'all called him the Cobra or something, Cobra Strike or something. And, um, you know, he just does things that kind of resemble um, what the true fan wants in a player. And that's not what true fans 
especially Boston fans, because you guys are nuts. Um, oh, yeah, yeah they, absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a Dallas guy, so, you know, all of us Dallas Cowboy fans are all fake fans down here. You guys aren't fake. You're, you're actually over, overly loyal to the point that y'all are nuts. Boston fans are oh, yeah. nuts, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I vouch for this 100%. <laughs> yeah, so um, I just think that people relate to him. You know, he brings a style of play that's very old school, um, that I think a lot of people want to see in the NBA, but you don't see that very often because it's just, you know, it's, it's just like the NFL, like any professional sports league, it's, it can be selfish, you know, because pe people are playing for contracts. People are playing for money. People are playing for whatever. Uh, Marcus just plays because he likes to play. Uh, to give you some insight on him, um, he just is a very loyal guy. Um, you know, his circle of, of trust, I guess, or friendship is very small. Um, but like he would stop his car. I've been with him on multiple occasions where he we've stopped and pulled over because he wanted to help somebody or more like Marcus's style. He would stop when he lived over in Kelly Olenek's old condo um, up kind of by, I guess, North side. Um, they they, they live they live together, Kenny. No, 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 no. Kelly, right. Ke he rented Ke for a while. He rented after Kelly's, Kelly went to uh, Miami. When Kelly left, he rented uh, his, uh, his condo. It would have been a great harbor. sitcom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, tell me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that could make for great stuff. But um, I, I, I mean, I remember just one particular story. We were driving the car. I was driving. We'd gone to get some pizza, I believe. And uh, we were crossing over the bridge. And there were these two, like, 18, 17-year-old kids on the side. And we're at a red light. And Smart just pulls, like, rolls the window down. And he does this all the time. He's like, Hey man, you dropped something. And like the kid didn't drop anything. And like Marcus will get out and, and be like, Yeah, you dropped this $20 bill or $50 bill or $100 bill or whatever. And like, <laughs> and then as this is all going on, the kid realizes, uh, That's Marcus Smart. And it's just funny. Like he just likes to mess with people and he's a very people person. But I think more so he's more of a, he's a, first of all, he's a child. I mean, he's like an eight year old going on 28. He's 27 going on 28, but he's like eight years old gets on your nerves like no other but um he uh he's just a he loves kids man like he his biggest mission is and you guys have seen the stories uh out of boston where um uh, i believe maybe two years ago uh the kid that was disabled uh, i don't know y'all kind of might dog my memory here there was a, uh, a a kid with this a disability marcus spotted him uh, made sure to go over and acknowledge him, gave him his jersey after the game, and it ended up being a big story. They actually um, became friends. And there was a girl, same thing with a, a young girl. She was like six that had um, gone through a tragedy in her life, and then they kept in contact just from an inspirational standpoint. That's just two stories off the top of my head. Um, you know, th I think that's what makes him unique. Um, he just uh, is uh, has a huge heart. He's just got a big heart, man. Like, I, you know, I guess it's – He's got this tough guy image or want to start a fight Im image or gets a technical foul image or whatever. Um, anyone that knows him knows that he is like the biggest heart. Uh, like he just really cares about people, man. Like uh, I love him to death, man. He is, uh, he's just, a, he's the real deal. Hey man, we love him and we trust him. We want to thank you for your time, Kenny. We want to shout out the Young Game Changer Organization Foundation. Uh, we're so proud to be able to, get this money over to you guys now that you're taking the next steps with your org. And we just want to thank you so much. 
Hey, we want to thank you. This is nuts what y'all have done. Like, this is crazy. I mean, Rich reached out, reached out to me a week or two ago. And, you know, I, I, I mean, Rich, you know maybe I'm think, wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Rich, maybe I'm wrong, but I would have never, uh, this, uh, this just skyrocketed. I didn't either. I, I, I didn't even think you were going to take our call, to be, to be honest. But once oh, we no. got through, and after that, that first pitch, man, it, 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 uh, it, it went from there. We're, we're all as shocked as you, I think. We're, we're, not, we're you proud. Got Mike, you got, hey, you got Mike Zarin tweeting y'all. I mean, he, he, that's like boss. That's like the Boston Celtic right there. Mike Zarin is. We got Mike, Mike Zarin is following you. Yeah, I heard. I heard. And, that's going to be good. I have a feeling if Mike's coming on, something big's probably about to happen because that's just Mike and Danny and all those guys. Um, they're just really cool people. Mike's a great man, but um, we appreciate y'all. Like. Uh, Marcus and me and Marcus's agent, Josh Katrozer, have been talking literally probably once an hour about this because it's kind of like a tracker. Like, if there was a tracker app, we would be tracking this. Like, it went – I mean, Rich, I remember you texted me. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's already at 6,000 and 7,000 and 10,000 15,000. And so um, it's pretty exciting just to see what you guys have done. And I promise you, if I were to show you my text exchange between me, Marcus, and Josh over the past, like, three days – it would verify what I'm telling you. Like he's just like super touched by all this. Awesome. That's why. So, that's why he got the Tommy Award, man. That's that's what he's about, and we're so thankful for you, Kenny. Yeah, we appreciate y'all. He's coming on, so uh, he he'll be on here a little bit later. So Rich, just touch base with me, and then we'll make sure we get him on. Awesome. Thanks, Kenny. You're the best. All right, guys. Hey, we appreciate y'all. If you need anything, holler. Thank you, Kenny. See you guys. Bye bye. I'd like to take a moment and talk about Time and Heinsohn and his impact on all our lives, uh, because especially because of this next interview coming up. Uh, Tommy Heinsohn, for me, I, I've been watching basketball games since since the, the Paul Pierce game when he, he took it all the way back against the Nets. And I can't think of anybody who's impacted my attitude more than Tommy Heinsohn. Basically, I think every draft pick the Celtics make is going to be a Hall of Famer as good as Bill Russell. Like Greg Steens, that he thought was on his level, and it's just that that positive attitude uh, towards people's growth and development. I think really personifies Tommy. And this next interview is someone who knows Tommy probably more than anybody else who ever, you know, has ever worked with him or known him. Uh, we were lucky enough to talk to Mike Dorman, the Celtics voice, about uh, this season, about the challenges of broadcast during the pandemic and really just about life in general. And so Efren's going to queue it up, and we have Mike Gorman with us. It's been a very difficult season. I think we can see it wearing on the broadcast. We can see it wearing on the players. And I wanted to... I, I wanted to reach out to you, and I'm so gracious and thankful for your your time in this and your generosity in this. And I would like to ask you, uh, what has the process been like for you to call games during this? Because it's such an atypical environment. Well, it, it, it's difficult, uh, frankly, um, depending upon the size of the monitor you have. And, and um, probably the biggest problem is is when I do a, a 99% of the broadcast, I do the producer, the director, and myself, the, the color guy, the graphics guy, we're all on the same page. Um, now everybody's on a different page because we're taking feeds from this person for this and this person for that. We have nobody in studio. Um, so as a result, it's, um, it's hard. I, um, I'm used to how our director cuts the game so I can anticipate what shot is going to be next and speak to it accordingly. Uh, 
I have no idea what shot is coming up next on the screen with the feeds that we receive. Like we'll go in uh, tonight to do the game against Chicago. And however the Chicago director decides to cut the game, that's what he does because he's the home team. Uh, however, he never gives any word to our guy on site what shot is coming up next. So you're constantly playing catch up with, with, with what is being seen on the, on the screen. So that's a problem. Um, the other problem is we're, I got used to being courtside. I get spoiled by being courtside. Mm -hmm. Um, we're like 30, 40 rows back now behind the first uh, whole section, of, whole bowl section of the garden. We're up where the uh, luxury suites are. And um, so now you combine everything I just mentioned to you earlier about the difficulty of knowing where they're going to go next, what shot they're going to take, take next, with the fact that you're now a football field, half a football field away from the action. Um, you don't see the numbers as quickly as you should on the players. Um, then you get games like we had against Orlando the other night where literally their first eight players were on the injured list. So it was a bunch of guys from the G League that you had never seen before. So you, you don't know who they are. Um, you see a lot of uh, text messages now, like how Mike Gorman's slipping and Mike Gorman's getting old. And, and the, both, the latter of those is true. I'm not sure about the former. <laughs> um, but, um, I don't think so. Is, <laughs> no. a, a lot of that is because of the fact that you really can't see the numbers, A, and so to identify the player's property, properly rather, and, and then B, you have to try to follow the action that the, the director is taking because the worst thing you can do as a broadcast is for me to be talking about Rich while there's a picture of you on the screen because the viewer senses this kind of disconnect. And so sure. how I've called games for the last 19 years is when the ball is in play, I watch the court. But as soon as the ball is the whistle, I watch the monitor because I want to be able to reference anything I say to what the person at home is actually seeing. Um, now that may seem like a simple concept, but it's foreign to a lot of broadcasters. If you listen to games on uh, like the NBA League package, you'll hear a lot of guys, they just will talk about what they want to talk about. It doesn't matter what you see on the screen. And eventually, again, that disconnect kind of gets to you. Um, so that's a very long-winded answer to your question. Um, is, it, is it difficult to do these games? Yes, it is more difficult than I thought it was going to be. Um, We'll be very happy when we can go back to doing games the way we have in the past, where we've always done them. But uh, as of right now and through the playoffs of this year, we're just going to have to grin and bear it. You know that old uh, that old Croatia game with Johnny Most when they yes, when, that's yes. A, the, the magic is your version of uh, of the Croatians. <laughs> Without question, it's like the short guy over the guy with the beard, the guy with the ponytail. Yeah, um, that that was that was John's call, and it was accurate. Uh, at the time but um yeah we, we do run into that problem and, you know like i'm anxious not anxious but I, I look forward to the miami games this week two games sunday and tuesday and even the chicago game tonight because i know these teams pretty well i know the first seven or eight players that are going to be out on the court so it, it allows me to again watch what's going on in the screen and try to talk to it as opposed to trying to refer to my notes or a roster guide that i have somewhere to find out that that last foul that I thought was on player A was actually on player B. Um, and that's where all the internet stuff starts. Like, you know, Mike's made a lot of mistakes. And I want to say, well, you come in this booth and try this. Let's see, what, see how you do. No, it's, it's a palpable th thing, I think, in terms of being able to listen to the broadcast and feel that there's, it's, it's almost just like an energetic disconnect from the audience, if that makes sense, in mm -hmm. terms of the crowd. And that, to me, is something that's really stuck out. I want to talk to you about uh, something on a much more positive note, to me, this, the spirit of Tommy Heinsohn is absolute positivity about draft picks. For me, whenever somebody's drafted to the Cs, I think they're going to be a star. And I think that was Tommy's influence <laughs> on my life. 
and I wanted to I wanted to talk to you about three of the younger guys who I think have really stepped up and added yeah. so much. Sure. Um, that's going to be uh, Nesmith, uh, Pritchard, and Rob Williams. I wanted to ask you your impression first on the two rookies and how they've been able to step in in really atypical and adverse circumstances. Yeah, um, they've done a very good job. Pritchard especially, I think you'd have to wait first, but certainly uh, the way Aaron has played over the past week or two, he has suddenly emerged as why they picked him number one. Uh, I think we were all influenced that on draft night by Jay Billis talking about how this was the best shooter in the draft. So I think we all got this image in our mind and some guy who's planted out beyond the three-point line all the time, just kind of waving for the ball saying, give it to me and I'll shoot it. And, and Nismith has turned out to be so much more the athlete than, than we thought he was. In fact, he, he, he might be the most athletic person we have next to uh, Rob uh, mm -hmm. Williams. Uh, so it, it, it's been very fun to watch him over the last couple of weeks emerge as an athletic player and not just a shooter. But to go, to go back to Pritchard, Pritchard has been solid from day one. Um, mm. You know, I, I'm, I'm a big, you mentioned the draft, I'm a big fan of four-year guys. I think guys who stay in college for four years and come out uh, turn out to be much better players than we ever thought they were. And if you're the winning the Bob Cousy Award and you're the uh, number one player the last two years in the Pac-10, you know how to play the game. I don't care oh, if yeah. six one. If you're 6'1", 180 pounds, you know how to play the game. And um, it's very obvious Pritchard knows how to play. Um, and it's from the time he steps on the court, he, he Brad uses the expression basketball play. He inevitably makes the right basketball play with what it is. That may not turn out to be successful, but it was the right pass to make at the time. Um, so I, I'm, a big, I'm a big fan of Pritchard and, and fast becoming a fan of Neesmith because I think we needed athleticism coming off the bench. We had a certain amount of toughness with Grant Williams, you know, he comes out and he throws his body around and he's not afraid to cover people that are 20 pounds heavier and three inches taller. Um, but we didn't have the athleticism that a lot of teams have. And so, uh, so to see Neesmith emerge like this for Pritchard to be the hustler that he is uh, and to put him out there with smart, then you really can harass people uh, and bother people. And uh, so I, I think these guys as unusual as it is, I think these guys are going to play a major role in the playoffs, even though they're, they're just freshmen, for lack of a better way to put it. I think, I think the biggest thing I've noticed with Neesmith is, uh, especially coming off of a lack of summer league and a lack of camp, he's gotten the rotations down defensively so much more. And you start to see him as an impact guy. Really, I think one of the games that, to me, stood out was he really seemed to harass and get uh, Kyrie off of his game a little bit. And then I mm -hmm. started to notice that with a lot of the high-impact offensive players, they really don't like dealing with him. And that, for me, has been really fun to watch and to see him mm -hmm. blossom into one of those impact guys. And it feels like he's, he's, he's playing in the, in, in the spirit of Marcus Smart. It feels like he has really taken off with that. Yeah, I... You know, Marcus, for all the trouble he gets in, for all the things he does, and some of them he, I would like to think he would take back if he could. Maybe he wouldn't. Um, but uh, Marcus, to me, if I were going to award a captaincy to somebody on this team, I'd give it to Marcus Smart without question. I, I, I think he's the physical leader. I think he's the emotional leader. Uh, I think he brings – some people say it's – not the right thing, but I think it is. He brings toughness to the floor. He brings, he, you're going to pay a certain price uh, for, for trying to take advantage of him on the offensive end if you're an offensive player. Uh, he's going to be physical with you. He's going to, um, 
He's going to take charges. He's going to beat you to the spot. Uh, he's just going to make your life miserable while you're on the court. Um, and um, we haven't had a defender like that in a long time. And I think we need guys to come in and we need guys to want to be the next Jason Tatum, but we also need guys who want to be the next Marcus Smart. Yeah, is there, absolutely. Is there, is there a former Marcus Smart? Is there anyone, as you said, it's been a long time since we had a defender like that. Is there anyone in all your years that sticks out? You know, I'm sure if I started going through rosters, I'd find somebody way back when I was too many games, Rich, to remember them all. Um, but not, not lately. Not in, um, you know, even on the, on the Garnett team, we had, we had Garnett, but we really didn't have a lot of defenders, per se. Uh, we came off the bench with the likes of Eddie House and people like that who were looking to shoot the ball. Um, so, yeah, we have not had that kind of guy. And, and, and you go around the league, there aren't many. You know, Beverly is, is a name that comes to mind with the Clippers. He's, he's a tough, really good defender, defensive player. Um, but there, there aren't a lot of guys. There, there aren't three guys in the league better than Smart. I know that's for sure. I agree with that wholeheartedly. He's actually the inspiration for this. To me, he's Mr. Celtic right now. He's the guy who is the heart and the soul. And I thought like picking his charity and foundation was especially like near and dear to my heart uh, with his background and personal story. And I thought like an influx of a little bit of positivity towards that would go along with the season. I'd like to uh, ask you a question about Robert Williams. He's my favorite guy. I'm kind of connected to him in a little bit of a way <laughs> because of the time Lord thing, uh, which I actually stopped using because I just, I, I thought it started to get a bit negative and a bit too much in the past. And uh, I just am so blown away by the leaps and bounds he makes every, it feels like every week he's adding something. And uh, to me, his passing is so rare at that position. What have you seen from Robert in his growth? Um, I, I, I see an all-star player in two or three years. Um, again, athleticism brings it to the front line, which we haven't had in a long time. We have toughness of Tristan Thompson there, but we don't have really athleticism and able to go up and go get alley-oops and, and, and block shots. Uh, so, and, and yes, his passing has been a pleasant surprise, especially over the last couple of weeks. Um, he has really adapted to being a, a starter very, very well. Um, a lot of guys have a problem coming in and doing that, especially after they've been playing off the bench and coming into games where the tempo is established already, as opposed to getting a chance to initiate that tempo at the beginning of the game. Um, so, yeah, I'm a big fan of Rob. I, I, I think he should start for us, and I think we should just move on to other problems that we have and, and just put him right in permanently as a starter. Um, he, he's getting smarter. He used to stay every week. He doesn't get in foul trouble like he used to early. Um, he, he picks his spots a little bit. Um, he's, he's just a very good player, and, and we're seeing more and more of his, his personality as he tends to get interviewed, which he wasn't before. And he, he seems to be, uh, at least basketball-wise, he's a bright kid. Mike, what's the ceiling on his range? Do you think? Do we see um, him? Do you see him out, think, outside yeah, the three-point line that, at any point? I, well, everybody seems to have to shoot that shot these days, Rich. So, like, whether they want to shoot or not, they have to go out and practice it. Um, but I, I don't want to see him floating around the three-point line. I, I, just, I want to see him cutting to the basket or close to the basket and trying to get an offensive rebound. Uh, we, we, God knows we have enough three-point shooters without, <laughs> without taking Rob and spoiling him in, on that uh, account. And I think personally, like having watched, watched his growth since A&M, I think one of the, the utilities he has is that driving is much easier for Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown when he's setting screens. Shooting is much easier for Kemba Walker when he's, shooting, when he's setting screens. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, I think when you play to your strengths like that, uh, he doesn't necessarily need that. I think he adds value by being his unique version of himself. 
I had a I had two more questions for you because sure. I don't want to keep you too long. I've I've been told that when you visit Memphis that you pick up guitars and collect guitars. And I'm a guitar guy. I was really interested into what was the impetus for that. How did you get into collecting guitars? And do you have a favorite guitar player or musical act? Um, I'm a big Mark Knopfler fan. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes, very, I love Dire Straits. Yeah, yes, I do like Dire Straits. And I like some of the stuff he's done independently by himself since then. Um, I just, uh, and I'm terrible. I'm not, I'm not very good at playing the guitar. My wife is, is really good. Uh, she practices a lot. I, I'm not a practice guy. I just expect it's going to come to me. It doesn't come as fast as I want it to be. But um, yeah, I started really because when, I went, when we went to Memphis, um, directly across the street, it's not there anymore, but directly across the street from the hotel that we would stay in was the Gibson factory. Yeah. And, um, and you could go, have you been there? Uh, I've been to the one in Nashville. I used to okay. yes. play uh, music and yes, try yeah. to do sessions in Nashville. Yes, and you can you can wander around and pick guitars off the wall and just fool mm -hmm. around with them, and nobody bothers you. And no, there's no hassle except people want to see whether you can play or not, and <laughs> determine whether you're going to stand around or not. But um, yeah, I, so I just became fascinated by how guitars were made, and they allowed you to walk through the whole process of how they go from a piece of wood to to a, to a beautiful musical instrument. So. Um, then my wife was, was playing a little bit, and so there was a, a Dylan, um, a, a guitar that Dylan had used somewhere that was on sale, and so I bought it for her for her birthday, and that just kind of oh, got man. me hooked a little bit. Um, <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, that got me hooked, and, and now that I just, uh, I have all my friends who uh, are in the second-hand business. I seem to know a lot of guys who have gone, gone that way in terms of a career. And I always am telling me they're calling me from anywhere saying like, hey, Mike, I'm down in Long Island right now and there's a, a fender, blah, 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 sitting here that the guy wants as much money for. So, um, yeah, so I, I, I try to pick my spots. My wife is like, you know, I think I have five or six guitars right now and she's like, oh, that's, that's good. That's a good number right there. You don't need no, five or six is nice, especially yeah, if they're quality. Can, I'll, I'll, Do you have I'll, a favorite? Um, yeah, I have a, I'm trying to move the camera so you can see it. Um, yeah, let's see it. There's a. Oh, yeah. Over the shoulder. A, yeah. Over my, over my right shoulder, yeah. Um, do I have a favorite? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the Dylan guitar I bought for her, I, I really like. Um, I, I have a, a Martin, about a 10-year-old Martin. That, that's, that's a nice piece. Uh, and I have a car, one that's about 30 years old. That when I was stationed in the military, I was stationed in, in Rota, Spain, um, and uh, that was a lot of guitar makers. When you would go into town and walk around, like like coffee shops, on every corner there was a guitar maker. So I have a classical guitar that I brought about 25 years ago uh, in Spain. So that's that's pretty much my collection. That's fantastic. Uh, my last question for you. Do you have one particular Tony story that people might not know that's really funny, something that like just captures his nature and his enthusiasm for the sport and life in general? Yeah, I, I, um, there, there are a lot of great stories. I, I, unfortunately, when we moved from, from Woburn to, to uh, Needham, where the studios are right now, a lot of the uh, old footage of Tommy got erased and thrown away. It's really, really a shame because we had great footage of him at the Seattle fish market throwing fish around with guys. And, uh, he, he was just the great, there were a lot of great things about Tommy, but one of the greatest was he was game for anything. If you said, Tommy, let's go out and do this, he'd be like, yeah, all right, let's give that a shot. We'll try that. Um, and he had his, 
his ego was so large, he just always thought he would be successful in everything he did. He just assumed that to be the case. Um, but to, to give you a reoccurring theme that people may or may not know, and, and, and th there's no exaggeration to this fact at all. When the game got close down the stretch, all of a sudden, Tommy became a player. And every time a shot would go up, I would feel this right elbow would come out and would push me back in my chair. Literally, the like, the box like out? That. Yeah, because he's boxing out, you know? And I would look at him, I'd say, what the, f you, you know, I'm trying to do the game here. Um, and he'd go, yeah, yeah, okay, 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 okay. And then the next shot that goes up, boom, I feel his elbow, like, you know, crunching into my right side. Uh, and uh, he just couldn't help himself. He, he, he couldn't help himself. He was, he was in the game. He, was, he wasn't coaching it. He was literally in it. So when a shot goes up, he had to box out somebody. Or, you know, I, I actually see him sometimes where he'd get his hands up like this, like the ball was going to come over and he's going to catch it and shoot it, uh, which he would have. Um, but uh, that, that's probably the most reoccurring thing. And, and that started on day one. We, we broadcast games together for 40 years. And that, that started on, on day one. And uh, the last game we did, I can show you some marks on my side from where he whacked me with his right elbow to try to get position for that rebound that somehow was going to come his way. Um, no, I've, I've been around a lot of basketball people in my life. No one was ever as into the game and into the moment as, as Tommy. Not even close, really. That's that, that to me, that is so beautiful and so indicative of just like how much his heart and soul is in the game. I want to personally thank you. My whole life I've been watching you. Uh, everybody I know has been watching you our whole lives. And we're just so grateful and thankful for your, your presence and your career and uh, just for being a part of this today. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you. That's, that's Thanks, really nice Mike. to hear you. You made my day. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Okay. Hey, this is Riss Man again. Thank you to Mike Gorman for coming in. Uh, that was just an incredible interview, and I had never really thought about the importance of broadcasting when you're displaced from the booth. So that was, for me, a gigantic revelation to be able to speak with him. And also, I mean, to know that Tommy was connected to the pulse of the game to the last seconds of his life with still bumping Mike every time was just fantastic. And really, I think that was, that was Tommy in a nutshell. He lived and died with Celtics basketball. So we're so thankful to Mike for him coming and, in. And Riffs, we got, we got, speaking of coming in, our, our next guest is, is ready. Um, is, this is a guy, as we're having these technical difficulties, the only thing that could make me feel worse is Mike Zarin texting me LOL over and over and, and taunting us as we struggle to get on the air. But uh, Celtics, can you, can you, is, your, is your audio on? We can't hear you laughing. Here. Okay. Yes, the assistant general manager of the Boston Celtics. Oh, this is literally, I'm about to have a panic attack. How am I supposed to follow that, guys? <laughs> Wait, Mike Gorman? Yeah. I mean, that was an incredible interview. What am I Thank supposed you. to say now? Jeez. You're supposed to say Mike Gorman's an absolute legend, and Marcus Smart is also an absolute legend, and somehow I'm supposed to be between them. I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do here, but well, your other choice was to 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 be on the other side of Marcus Smart. That's, I didn't I didn't want to do that too. Happy, I think that's right. So so tell us when when did you think that Marcus Smart might be a Celtic? What did you see in him? What did you guys see in him? Can you remember like the uh, first scouting tape? I mean, did you go to we we watched him all through college? Um, there's a great. There's a great. I'm watching the chat. There's some funny things in the chat, but um, there's a great. <laughs> there's a great story uh, about Danny and, and Tony Allen, 
and um, you know, where we're about to draft Tony Allen and, and Wick says to, this is one of my first drafts. Wick says to, to Danny, Tony Allen, isn't that the guy who got into a fight with the cop? And, and, you know? <laughs> and Danny goes, yeah, that's the guy I want. Um, and, and uh, you know, Marcus goes into the stands to challenge a fan who's, who's used a racial epithet against him and, and bait, not to fight him, but just to tell him that that's not acceptable. Um, he's just got balls like no one else. Uh, he's really, really unique. I, I agree totally with Mike that there aren't a lot of people um, like him in, in Celtics history or basketball history, really. And so, um, you know, our, our big question in college was his shooting, which was just okay. It was never bad, but it, but it wasn't as good as it needed to be in the NBA. But we knew he could do everything else. Um, and I, I went to one of his last college games um, at Iowa State. I'll never forget this. Um, uh, the whole you know, player introduction. Iowa State's one of the most underrated places to see a basketball game uh, in the whole country. The fans there are really incredible and, and Ames is sort of in the middle of nowhere. And when they introduced Marcus, the entire student section flopped. And Marcus <laughs> thought it was like the funniest thing ever. He thought it was like hilarious. And he went out and just destroyed their whole team that game. It was, it was amazing. Um, the, the other thing I'll remember about Marcus pre-draft is we had him in for a draft workout and he didn't play well at all. Um, it was one of the worst draft workouts of, of that year, and we all had been pretty high on him. Um, uh, our statistical stuff liked him. Our scouts liked him. Danny loved him. Um, but the workout was not good. And we get a call a couple days later, and it's from Marcus's agent saying, like, this is a weird thing to say, but Marcus just called me, and he's desperate to come back and work out for you again. He knows that wasn't a good workout. And um, you, just, you just knew you just knew um, that, that he was, you know, all effort all the time. He came back in the second workout and totally dominated everyone else uh, in the room. I don't know what happened the first workout, but um, we, we were pretty sure after that second workout, we were drafting him. Mike, my name's Ryan. Many people call me the wrist man. I'm responsible for all the insane stuff you have to deal with online. Uh, it's come to my attention, basketball aside, that you were a drummer. And we have Neil Pert standing in the background of Sean. We gotta no, know who, you're, we gotta know who your top five drummers are, man. Oh, top five. You're putting me on the spot to come up with a list of top five. You're on the oh. hot seat, baby. Jeez. I gave you I gave you a heads up. Well, if I can push you in what push you in direction for number one. The heads up I got was like who's no John Bonham's my favorite drummer of all time. It's not sure, favorite. yeah. Uh, he, not as technically savvy as right, me. no, but um uh, that that one's easy for me. Um, my second favorite drummer is someone you guys probably won't know. Uh, he's actually my my drum teacher, and that's like a cheesy thing to say. But Ron Savage, um, longtime head of all ensembles at Berklee College of Music, um, okay. session musician with cool. like Sonny Rollins and Holiday and a big bunch of other jazz musicians. He's just absolutely incredible. Um, and uh, uh, so I I got to put him in there. Um, obviously Neil Peart and every everybody. Yeah drummer i'm gonna i'm gonna just pick a, a random other drummer and stop there um underrated recent drummer because i like to listen to a lot of weird electronic music and he's not an electronic musician but has played with a lot of them is a guy named yuval gabai who is the drummer for soul coughing which is a band you might remember from the 90s i know them um, what, what was the one hit they had one one uh, really well they, they had actually two hits uh, but neither of them are anywhere close to my favorite soul coughing song uh they got super bon bon that you might remember and then uh circles which doesn't sound like any other song i don't that's it 
that, that doesn't sound like any, yeah. See now there's people in the chat who know what I'm talking about. Let the man go through like that. That's what I'm talking about. There's some good soul coughing music, but uh, I think, um, I think I'll just stop there. There's so many good drummers. Um, we have a bunch of drummers at the Celtics. Wick plays drums. Our head of security, Jim Mayall is also a drummer. So we have a good little drumming crew. I, I, nobody knew this about me until like, Suddenly, instead of sitting way up in the balcony, I'm sitting courtside now, and people sort of see me playing the drums during timeouts when there's music. <laughs> What's your, uh, if I throw out a Tommy Heinsohn, memories? Um, what, what, is, no, is there a story, a Tommy story oh, you like I, to share? I, I, I tweeted this, so it's not a new story, but like there used to be this room that Danny and I had, like just inside the tunnel that the team comes out of, that was sort of our office at the garden before we remodeled um, there. And I don't know when, maybe 2010, 11, Tommy just started coming in and hanging out there before the game. We needed a place to sit. We had a really comfy couch. And um, I, I was in there a lot, more than Danny. Uh, Danny doesn't come to all the games for various reasons, and he's scouting some and stuff. And so um, he knew I was in there, and he'd just come in and sit down next to me on the couch and just start talking about the team. And we talked for hours and hours uh, about, you know, the opponent, our team, the draft, whatever he – like he had no reason to talk to me, right? Particularly, you know, back then, I, 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 people know who I am now, but nobody knew who I was then. And, and um, he just lived Celtics basketball every single minute of his life. Uh, and and th there won't ever be another person like him associated with an NBA franchise, as far as I'm concerned, um, who's done everything, uh, lived every moment. And it didn't, you know, I, I'd be talking about someone in this year's draft and he'd mentioned a player from the 70s that that guy was like, and I'd be like, <laughs> Yeah, I'd see him play. I've met him, but I, I don't know what that guy's game was like. But if he's anything like this guy, it'll be pretty good. I think the, the 70s was pretty current for a Tommy reference. No doubt, no doubt. <laughs> um, but uh, Tommy's Tommy's just one of a kind. I, I don't – it's it's so many little funny stories he had uh, rather than one big moment for me. I wasn't traveling around with him like Mike was as much. Um, but he, he just – you know, people say I'm a big Celtics fan. Obviously, I think my dad is a huge Celtics fan. I, I said this in my tweet when Tommy passed, like Mike Rotundi's this courtside fan has been there for 40 years. Um, but the top Celtics fan of all time is Tommy Heinsohn. That's just obvious. And, and, and now, now, Mike, uh, this is a people and a online fan-based initiative. Uh, we wanted to get behind it because Tommy's not with us. And the first Tommy Award, we wanted that as a community to show it. What is the organization's response uh, to this and everything that's unfolded because of it? Well, I'll give you my response. I haven't talked to our, our PR people or, or Wick or Danny or Rich about this, but um, I think when Rich told me he was doing this, I just thought it was super special. And then I, I couldn't believe the outpouring of support over the last few days. Um, for this. Uh, Marcus is one of the rare athletes where he has a foundation and it's not just, you know, a way to employ a couple of his buddies and have a charitable ball every year where the money all gets spent to do the ball and not much goes to anyone else. Marcus um, actually has events all the time where he donates stuff to help kids um, in large part in Boston and certainly um, some in Dallas now. But uh, if you spend any time around Marcus, away from the court he's he's like every kid who walks by he wants to talk to him he's a kid and the kids recognize that um and it's really really special how he's committed to doing so much good that he doesn't spend a lot of time publicizing um particularly around boston so this is pretty special we we do um 
we do uh, a lot to support our players' charitable uh, endeavors. And as you know, I'm the like cap guy, uh, and there's very specific limits we can we can do um, to help them because otherwise you just promise you know when you're signing the guy to give 10 million bucks to his foundation or something like that. So you can't do that. There's there's real limits on it. But I um, we because this year's been so weird. Um, we haven't, we haven't done all the things that we're allowed to do in a year. And so I, I checked with our people. I, I can't do too much, but I'm, I'm definitely donating $636, um, which seems like an appropriate six and 36. It seems like the right uh, amount. I, I can't do much more because of the cap rules and what we've done uh, for other players and things, but uh, I'm in for that. This is really, really special what you guys are doing. And, and thanks so much to everyone who's donated. It, it really, um, will go really to help kids. And that's not something that you hear all the time um, with Athletes Foundation. So thank you so much, all of you guys, uh, for, for putting this on, really special. Thank you, Mike. We're so, we're grateful to have you. And to know your top drummers is like, that's that was the top priority <laughs> for me. Like, I don't know about everybody else, but wasn't, thank, uh, thank you so much for your time, man. We really appreciate it. I sure wasn't expecting uh, to come on a, a chat with a big bunch of uh, uh, weird Celtics Twitter people and talk about drummers, but I guess that's appropriate. I I uh, I know if I weren't working for the team, I'd be spending more time uh, uh, paying attention to what all you guys are doing online. <laughs> you don't. There aren't there aren't um, too many fan bases with a group like I don't even like a, some sort of formal group, but like weird Celtics Twitter is a pretty special thing. So thank you. Uh, for being involved in that as well. It's pretty neat. Thank you, Mike. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. All right. Take care, guys. Enjoy the rest of the night. Donate. If you haven't donated yet and you're watching this, freaking donate. <laughs> there it is. Thanks, buddy. Speaking of which, Sean, have, have you donated? I have not. I was going to do it live on the air. And in fact, <laughs> let's let's do that right now. Well, and while you're doing it, and, and, and Zarin mentioned it, so I want to make sure we, we reinforce this, is that Kenny had texted me uh, earlier in the show and said that they're going to put this donation that we give them, both the donations, uh, in, in their grant programs account. So you can we can let everyone know 100% of the money raised is going to go to funding youth programs, uh, and none of it's going to be used for overhead for the cost of the foundation. So, you know, like Zarin was saying, like people throwing events that, you know, basically it's just to kind of break even, even every penny that we have raised this week is going to the right place. So that's just unbelievable. I think this is a testament to the online community, uh, to the people being behind Marcus and his cause. And I think just in general, I think like online can be such a bizarre, odd, chaotic, toxic place. But like this past week has really uh, reaffirmed my belief that like people can come together and do cool things in all sorts of settings. And I'm super grateful for everybody who's contributed so far. Sean's contributing right now. He just did it. I'm, oh. about, I'm about to hit sand, but right into my account. I'm doing, account. I'm doing Slam it. that button, baby. Slam love it. to see it. We love just, to see it. Just hit the hold on. It's processing. It's processing. This is all right. Hold just on. got the email. You did. You got right. the email. Here you go. Trust the process, it is done. Yes, got the email from Sean, no less. Yeah, the, king, it's the, the, king of, the guy who the gets the emails has now email. been the one sending the email. So uh, this is like a full circle. Full moment. circle. There you go. The shoe's on the other foot. Now, right now, we're waiting to get our next guest in. But I want to talk to Sean and Eric about their podcast. I've known Sean for like 10 years. And I'd like you guys to introduce yourselves. Literally 10 years. Yes. 
I'd like you guys to introduce yourself and what you do with your podcast and journalism in general. I'm an, I'm, my name's Sean Hike, and I'm an NBA reporter for Bleacher Report. Actually, if, 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 if any of you on Weird Celtics Twitter know me, it's probably because like three or something years ago, I wrote this story for Uproxx about Weird Celtics Twitter where I interviewed my man Riffs has kind of made it into, I, I don't want to take credit for making it into a mainstream thing, but I mean, I think that was the first time it really was like published on a major outlet. And I think after that, you started seeing like, uh, I, you know, this was not my intention at all, but like you started seeing like people like ESPN using Time Lord in, in their broadcasts and like Marcus Smart looking at Smart memes with Abby on an iPad on like Celtics broadcasts and stuff. Like, <laughs> but, it's, still, still, it's still surreal to me that yeah, this has happened. But, <laughs> but yeah, Rips, I mean, I mean, the thing is, the thing is, Rips and I like, I mean, back, back in the day, back like I think when Twitter was a lot more fun and a lot more like, you know, it was a lot more. It was a lot friendlier. It was. It wasn't like it is now, where it's just kind of this group think and just this. Everybody's kind of like trying to impress each other with whatever. But like, you know, I think Ryan and I kind of have a lot of the same taste in music, and so we kind of bonded over a lot of that as well as some of the basketball stuff. And so that's kind of how that uh, got started. But yeah, I was with USA Today for a while. I was then with the Athletic at the beginning of their sort of run. I've been with BR for this is my fourth season now i'm based in i was based in chicago for a while I used to cover the bulls i'm in portland now that's where i grew up eric and i went to college together that's right that's right yeah and then i actually i became a writer i was a i was a beat writer at, the, at a newspaper up here at the vancouver columbian covering the blazers for a while and also covering some local sports high school sports and stuff like that and then also uh you know been freelancing for the past few years for the associated press that's a freelance work for the New York times. Uh, and I also was running the LeBron wire for the past couple of years. Uh, and that was really fun. And that was when riffs and I really, we started collaborating because Rob Palenka just as a figure is so inspiring. And, and so, you know, he generated a lot of prompts for us, if you will, to kind of just jam on things and, and, that's how Riffs and I really got to know each other a little bit more. And then obviously our podcast is, uh, you know, Sean and I talking about the league. We've been covering it for a long time. And then obviously we know each other. We had Riffs on as a season preview. I believe but, uh, Riffs is the only person that's ever been a guest on the podcast that isn't Eric's wife, who's also been on. So I feel, I feel, I feel like a luxury guest. Yeah, we're, ve- we're very, we're oh. very, we're very like, we aren't really very guest heavy at all. We just like, it's a very short list of people we would ever have on as guests, but Rips was, it was a no brainer, obviously. You're just like, that needs to happen. Yeah, I never got the, I never got the, the invite. My must have <laughs> got last was. Maybe well, Rich, I don't, Rich, I just, I don't think you Rich and I know each other before. No, maybe, maybe another time. We met last night for the first time. Yeah, li- yeah, like I, yeah. yeah. And I don't, and I don't know how that, I don't know, I don't know how that happened. I know a lot of the other like Boston media, like I've known Jay King for years, Jared Weiss is a buddy of mine, like, all you know, a lot of the other like Celtics media people are. I sort of phased out just as they were coming into yeah. their into their own. Yeah. A little bit older than those guys, but I think I think our next guest is going to be here uh, <clears throat> very shortly, uh, and I th- it's it's worth it's worth the wait. I mean, it's, this is exciting stuff. Man of the uh, night, man. The man of the uh, night. Yeah. Um, but that was great conversation with Aaron. Ha- very happy that he was able to join us. Um, 
and it still blows my mind, man. Riffs. We, and we talked about this a few times over the last couple of weeks. Like, you know, you said you wondered if you were the right person to do this. But Damn, I hope, I, I, I hope you understand. I hope you understand that, that anybody you are, else doing it wouldn't be right. There was only one person. I, like I said, I might have had the original thought, but it only happened because Riffs Man exists. Do you hey, know what man, I mean? I'm, I'm grateful to be doing this. More than anything, we're grateful to be getting the money to Marcus Smart's foundation and the kids. And uh, I just think this is sensational, and we should do it more often. It should. We should be looking to do more things community based. Uh, for initiatives to help the players' causes. And I think that's, like, where, where Twitter should go. If it, And really the media, too. I think we should all be working in cooperation to help their causes since the game that they play and work at is the thing that gives us all something to talk about. Riff, so you ready for your moment? Oh, yeah. For the I'm, moment I'm that down, we've all been man. waiting for? I'm down. I'm about to hit admit, and then I don't know what's going to happen next. All bets are off. Marcus, my name is Ryan Hebert. People online call me the Risk Man. We want to thank you for being here and everything you do. Uh, congratulations on the first annual Tommy Award. What does that mean to you to get that recognition from someone who lived for the Celtics? Uh, first of all, thank you. Um, and, you know, it means a lot. You know, like you said, somebody who lives for the Celtics and somebody, you know, who who Celtics uh, fans and, and family look at as, you know, uh, one of its own uh, legends. And, and, and the top of the legend list. And, uh, you know, it's an honor, you know, to, to know Tommy uh, when he was here with us, um, to know him in general, to be able to, to, to listen to his expertise and, and listen to what he has to say and, and the advice that he's given me. So it's, it's, it's definitely an honor to be able to get the first Tommy Award. Man, I have so many questions. You're, you're my favorite player, first off, that I've ever watched with the Celtics. And I just want to tell you, the whole community is behind you. That's why we got, like, it's you specifically that we're behind on and off the court. And I wanted to ask you a couple of questions. Are you aware that you're changing the game of basketball with your approach to loose balls uh, to the to the small parts of the game that not so many people are, are cherishing? But I watch every game, and you give us something new every night. Are you aware of the fact that you're changing the game with your approach? Uh, I am. I'm trying to, you know, uh, especially in today's game, you know, the little things kind of go unnoticed. Um, you know, if you're not scoring 30, if you're not being the flashiest guy, you don't really get talked about or get that much recognition. And, and you know, um, that's all cool and all, but we, you know, I just wanted to be out there for the people, you know, to let guys know and, and girls know that, you know, um, anything's possible, literally. You know, you just go out there and you work hard and you do the little things, you know, and, and don't really worry about, you know, what everybody else is saying. You know, um, you will change the game in ways that you can even imagine. And uh, and people will, 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 will just really, really join your side. And, and the true fans and the true people who know you will understand and, and really root for you. So for me, that's what it's been about, you know, going out there, you know, and, uh, and just proving that, you know, anything can happen um, when you're on that court. And, uh, you know, doing the things that nobody else wants to do and getting that recognition for it. In my opinion, I think you already have a couple of iconic plays, uh, especially in the playoffs. Uh, which one felt better, the steal against Philly to seal that series or the block on Norman Powell? Oh, man, uh, definitely the block on Norman Powell. Um, I think only because the, the game before, game six, uh, that exact same move uh, presented itself. And, uh, you know, he, he got the best of me on that. Uh, with the N1. So, you know, um, coming down in game seven with the game on the line, 
um, I really just wanted to make an emphasis not to let that happen again. So when that, when that presented itself again, I knew exactly how to approach it and how to go about it. So I definitely have to give it the game seven block against Norman Powell. Now, lastly, uh, we're so grateful for your time. Uh, we're going to get a little bit over uh, $33,000 to your uh, foundation. Are you surprised by the outpouring of love for the community? Because it's not a surprise to me. I know how much people love you, man. And what are your thoughts on what the community has been able to do for the for the first ever Tommy Award? Oh wow, uh, that's, wow, <laughs> uh, man, that's that's words can't even explain it. You know, um, um, I've been here my whole career, seven years, going on eight. Um, I love it here. Everybody knows how I feel about Boston, and uh, you know, I know exactly how Boston feels about me. You know. This fan base, this this family, this organization is is is, is at the top of the, the premier list, and the things that you know the fans show on a daily basis, like this right now, um, is something that um, you know these are the moments that you live for. These are the moments that you play for to be able to use your platform in a way to to help others, and you know to get your voice heard and get their their voice heard, who probably wouldn't wouldn't be heard if if, if uh, on a smaller platform. So. Um, it definitely shows, you know, the type of commitment that the fans have and support they have to you. Um, and it means a lot, definitely, you know, um, in the sense that, you know, a legend that, like I said, and Tommy not being here with us anymore, it's just, it, it all works together. It, it's just funny how, you know, um, talking with Tommy when he was here and listening to him, like I said, and now the first Tommy Award after him being gone, is it's, it's a lot of emotions going right now. Do you have a, do you have a Tommy story? Marcus? Um, yeah, you know, um, he would always sit. And it's funny because I, I've told people this. He would always sit and watch me warm up and shoot. When everybody else is criticizing me about it, you know, Tommy was right there just constantly keep shooting. And Marcus, you got it. And, you know, that accent is the real heavy accent. And, and you got it. And, uh, you know, just being able to hear him give that advice just meant a lot. Man, our – I, I think it's perfect that you got the first ever Tommy Award because it was palpable and very obvious that he loved your game almost as much as anybody I've ever seen him call games for. So we're so thankful for you, Marcus, what you do in the community and your play on the court. And thank you for your time. Oh, thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. We're at 35K right now. Still going. That's awesome. We've got about there an hour go. and a half left. That is awesome. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Marcus. Thank you, Marcus. That was Marcus Smart. That was for me. I've been, I've watched. How are you feeling, Riffs? I've watched every single one of his games and basically worshiped the way he plays. And he's changed my perspective on basketball and on life and on the energetic universe and all that connects us. Just the vibes. <laughs> vibes, man. He's, he's an all-time vibes player. Uh, he, he uplifts everyone, man. And that's how we all got to be. Who else, who else is on your top three? Vibes. So we got Marcus is in the top three. Are there uh, two other guys you could throw out real quick? All time or just currently? Let's go current. In the league or just on the team? No, let's go league. In the league. In the league. Yeah, league. Vibes guy. Number one is Nikola Jokic. I mean, he's he's just he's whipping passes around that nobody's ever seen before. He's creating new dimensions on the court. He's uh, he basically is like if I was seven feet tall playing basketball, so I have to accept that. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but I think, I think Jokic is the other one. And then it's, it gets really difficult. 
but I'd have to say Davis Bertans because he's playing he's playing without a finger. He's kind of like Tony Iommi. <laughs> and his his takes from three are some of the most exciting that I've ever seen. So those those are my three guys I think in the league, vibes wise. Hyken, who are your guys? Vibes wise? Oh yeah. I think I mean I think just maybe just here at Portland being around him for the last you know, year and a half. I think Carmelo Anthony is pretty high up on the vibes list. I think Eric can attest to this. Like, the, the, this version oh. of, like, the wearing number double zero version of Carmelo Anthony is, is the, the, the vibes are pretty incredible. He's totally content at where he is in his career. He's embraced kind of being the older guy, you know, just all, just all of that. Like, the current version of Melo is up there. I am, I mean, I don't know if this is going to be controversial or, like, because obviously, like, his exit was kind of ugly from Boston, but also, like, he was part of that championship team. I've always been a huge Rajon Rondo guy. Mm. I, I covered him in... And William uh, Rondo. I mean, we're here as William Rondo, we're also, the, vi- the vibes yeah. concierge I mean, in the bubble. <laughs> but He's literally, he, his business is vibes. But I, 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 co- I covered Rajon for a year in Chicago, and I mean he's he's a different type of dude. Like I've just I've never met anybody like him. I've also he's he's like besides LeBron, he's probably the smartest player in the NBA in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. And I just I don't know. I just I love I just I love the way he controls games. I love the way that like I mean no matter what he does in the regular season, you just know that in the playoffs it's gonna the playoff Rondo thing. And like I'm a lot higher on the Clippers this year than I was last year solely because they got him. And then number three, I guess uh I mean Jokic is a good one. Uh I like uh Oh, you know you know you know who I like. I I mean this is I guess kind of a a uh and I know I know Eric's gonna go with me on this, and this is I guess a timely thing because he just signed an actual NBA deal for the rest of the season and for like multiple years today. But I've become a big Juan Toscano Anderson guy this year. Oh, uh, saying I love just him. just actually... a dude who like worked like completely just worked grinded his way up from just the bottom to get to where he is, and now he's an actual contributor on the Warriors. And like and I just played. I love it. Riffs when he when he dove out of bounds in that Celtics game. Is that what you're going to say? Not get, get needed stitches in his head for diving into the scores table and bouncing off three different computers and a bunch of bunch of plugs. I yeah, mean, that would, that, would, that that's vibes, but that's just that's a little bit of everything. Right. I mean, I just I like that's the Marcus Smart type of that's a smart exactly that's yeah. a smart type of play. Yeah, is what that was. Those monitors are indestructible, by the way. So before we uh, get to our next segment, riffs real quick. Marcus just texted. Says that was awesome. It means so much. Hey man, that's cool. he means a lot to us. So to even get to talk to him as part of this is just fantastic. And Eric, I need you to come at me hard and fast with your top three vibes, guys. And then we've got a bit of an advert coming in for it. Yes, of course. Oh, top three vibes, guys, real quick. Uh, well, for this season, uh, Anthony Edwards Ooh. definitely mm. has to be on there. Uh, Miles Bridges is another vibes guy that I really love. His dunks, his threes, and uh, gosh, another guy for this season. Um, you know what? I'm gonna shout out Cameron Payne. Oh yeah, I, yes. I, I I love watching that dude get some buckets, especially after all he went through. So thank you, Riffs, for getting. Let me do my my top three vibes guys. Campaign is is like such a great vibe. I love watching him play this year. I think all of these picks were sensational. And something else I think is sensational is some 
independent podcast. And uh, I've been lucky enough to know some people in Boston media. For whatever reason, people <laughs> allow me to come on their shows. And, uh, and, and, and one of them is one of my dear friends, and that's uh, Tom Westerholm and his partner in this, Nicole Yang. And they have a podcast called Geno Time, and they've gotten involved with this and have done a lot of promo. So we have a message from Geno Time, and, and we'd like to roll that message about this uh, charity fundraiser and their involvement with it and about the community. So this is Tom and Nicole. What's going on, everybody? We are the Geno Time Podcast. I'm Tom, here with Nicole, Chris Gretham. We uh, just wanted to talk to you guys for a minute, just say thank you to everybody who's donated so far and to express our support for um, Tommy Point Charity Drive here and just start, express our support for the Rifts man and everything that he's been doing. Um, we're recording this on Wednesday evening. He's already up over like $26,000 for Marcus Smart's excellent Young Game Changers Foundation. So just to everybody who uh, everybody who's donated so far, thank you. Everybody who's going to donate, thank you. Um, just wanted to throw it to you guys. I mean, why do you feel like that this, uh, I mean, we're all big supporters of this. Uh, why do you guys, why is it important to you guys that we support, um, you know, this this uh, this drive that Riffs has put together? I mean, I've enjoyed Riffs Man's presence on Twitter, I think, since I started covering the Celtics and just logging onto Twitter and seeing his commentary throughout games instantly improved my experience. And sort of as he's found like how he wants to use his platform, I think it's awesome that he's mobilized his following. And like, I really resonated with what he said on our episode, like so many people are out there for just like the clout, but he actually wants to like do good for the Celtics community. Like the Celtics mean something to him and he wants to give back. And I think that's awesome. Like the fact that they've raised over $25,000 in 36 hours is like insanely, I don't just like amazing. Like I don't think anybody could have expected that from like a Twitter community uh, for a sports team, in my opinion. So I think it's easy to get behind most things that Riffsman does, but especially in a time where it's a hard year for everyone because of the coronavirus pandemic, it's a tough season for the Celtics. It's coming at the perfect time. Yeah, Riff's presence on Twitter is essential for the Celtics community, and I'm not kidding when I say that. Like, this has been a really hard year for a lot of people, and the Celtics have had a really hard year, so that outlet that a lot of people turn toward with this online community hasn't necessarily been the same. So he's reworking the vibes, I guess I could say, reworking the vibes and kind of using this online community as a positive space, which I think more people should really try to do, and he's been able to band so many people together and use it for such a great cause to help Marcus's foundation. I mean, I don't really know who wouldn't be behind that. I think it's a no-brainer. So it's awesome. I, I, I like seeing it turn back into a, a positive space, and he's using that online influence for some extreme good. He's raised a ton of money, and as we speak, continuing to raise money. So I think it's fantastic. Definitely, and I think, you know, again, it's, it's really easy for us to throw our support behind Riffs and everything that he's doing. It's really easy for us to throw our support um, behind the young game changers and, and everything that, that Marcus has done there. And, you know, Marcus himself, I mean, you know, we've, we've all covered him. And I think, uh, I think I speak for everybody, like every interaction we've had with him has just been really positive. And um, you can just see the really good things that he's doing for, uh, you know, for community for kids and with the young game changers, it's really cool. So um, we're really excited about that. And I think the other thing, just to your guys point about on um, the community and just the positivity, I think a lot of people are craving an opportunity to do something good. Like it's, it's been a really hard year and a lot of people are looking for a chance to, you know, look like there's a lot of negativity on, on Twitter. There's a lot of negativity on uh, especially sports Twitter right now, but 
um, you know, that, that this, this is a cool reminder that there are a lot of really good people on Celtics Twitter, on Weird Celtics Twitter, on like just the, the whole community that, that's, that's been around the Celtics. Um, so just again, we're really happy to support this. We're really happy to be a part of this. Um, if you are interested in the Geno Time podcast, you can feel free to find us on any podcast network. But really, um, we just, we just want to say again, thank you to everybody who's donated. Thank you to everybody who's going to donate and uh, just keep it coming. So uh, thanks, everyone. Thank you, Reps. All right, and we're back. Sean just proposed to me in the break a question about some acts, man. And I would be remiss if we didn't talk about guitarists during this broadcast. Sean, hit me with your question again. I was just asking you, I mean, I know this is a subject that's very close to your heart. I was just going to ask you what you thought about the news yesterday that kind of came out of nowhere that Randy Rhodes, Ozzy's old guitarist who passed away after his first two albums, is going to get inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I think he needs to be in there. I think he revolutionized the way the guitar was played with his neoclassical tapping approach that Mm -hmm. other, other guys had done it. But he, he brought more of the minor and melodic minor into it that I think was a a compliment or or kind of a juxtaposition to what Eddie was doing with the tapping. Kind of the, the evolution of like what Eddie was. And I think I think Ozzy's career would would have gone very 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 differently if not for Randy's approach, kind of reinvigorating I think his entire recording career. In uh, in in Randy to me, he has so many techniques, and I've tried to crib from him the uh, the pick tapping, the the really quick uh, tremolo, uh, tremolo with the pick on the fretboard. I think that's one of the most amazing sounds in the history of guitar. And uh, just talking about Randy, we lost Eddie this year. What, what do you think like Eddie's ultimate work is in your opinion in terms of records? I think the first one, I think the first, the first, specifically the first side of the first Van Halen album is pretty untouchable. Opening with Running with the Devil, and then you go right into the eruption, You Really Got Me, Ain't Talk. And that, honestly, the rest of that record, like Little Dreamer is a song on side two that I think uh, like doesn't really get a lot of attention, but that's a really good one. And then I know and I'm not a guitarist, so I'm, you probably can speak more to this. But I love, for whatever reason, a lot of guitarists, the one they really point to, the album that they really point to is Fair Warning as that's the one that they are all really into. That one is a little bit further. I mean, I'm not really, I was, the Hagar stuff never really did much for me. I'm really just about the Roth stuff with with them. But like, I think the first album is pretty much untouchable. That's as good as any debut album that anyone's ever released, I think. I go through all the Van Halen records because I just think his tonal approach evolved so much. And even if the material wasn't quite there, I mm-hmm. think he was always coming at technology from a different perspective. And I think, Basically, he always stepped the game up in terms of tone and recording in a way that basically only Les Paul and maybe maybe Jimmy Page in some ways, but really only Les Paul and Eddie Van Halen have that legacy. And I'll say this about that first album. If, if, if Eruption weren't on it, we'd be talking about uh, I'm the One is like one of the great, if not the greatest guitar performances mm-hmm. of the era. And now, Rich, we're going to hit to you as we get into this next interview. You had a bit of an announcement of sorts. Oh, yeah. Well, an announcement, a thank you. So for, for our next interview, uh, Rich and I got Robert Parrish. And as you saw with Gorman, we did most of these, these, these interviews on Zoom. Robert had a little bit of problem with the video on his computer. He was traveling. Anyways, we only had the audio. We wanted some visual to go along with our conversation. So uh, Steve Lepofsky. Lepo- it's a lepofskyphoto.com. Steve was the uh, the team photographer 
for a good chunk of years in the 80s and early 90s, literally on the sidelines with his camera for every amazing moment of Larry Bird's career. Uh, and he was kind enough to to just d donate his photos. And everyone should go, like I said, look, thepopskyphoto.com. If you're interested in buying some really cool old prints from old NBAs of the 80s, early 90s, Steve has an amazing collection. Check it out. You can order your prints right there. It's super easy. Um, so yeah, so this is a conversation with Robert Parrish with some help from Steve Lepofsky and uh, we hope everyone enjoys it. You've had a fascinating life and I've followed you for so long. I wasn't of your generation, but I've been a fan and have followed you forever. Oh, I, I had some questions about mentorship in your life. Uh, the more I looked into you and your uh, vegetarianism and your uh, yoga practices and just living right and stuff, I, I, I kept seeing the name Clifford Gray come up and I wanted to ask you about his impact on your life and uh, how you got into those practices. Uh, well, when I got drafted in 1976 by the Golden State Warriors, Clifford Ray and George Johnson were the two centers. And uh, uh, one of the reasons why I have such uh, respect for Clifford and George is that they wasn't intimidated, they didn't feel threatened by my presence because I was there to eventually uh, replace them and I thought it said a lot about them in ter terms of who they were, their character, and uh, how secure they was uh, with, with, with themselves and, and with their position. And so that's one of the reasons why uh, Clifford Ray uh, name uh, surfaced whenever I talk about how my career got started and how I was mentored uh, because he showed me that it wasn't just about walking on, on the basketball floor you know, playing basketball wasn't it just about uh, practice, your routine, the process. It's about more. It's also about eating right, uh, keeping your conditioning uh, where it should be, uh, taking care of yourself, getting rest, staying hydrated, and also one. I think one of the, one of the best, some of the best advice that I was given by Clifford and George, that was to stretch every day that has resonated with me uh after my playing career because i see a stretch every day and that's something that's in my opinion paramount for anybody because as you get older as you age you get tighter and stiffer and you start to lose your mobility and and you're not as agile you're not as mobile so it's paramount to stretch every day is that, is that a first thing in the morning thing for you, Robert? Because I find that once, once the day starts, it's hard to get into the routine, right? Exactly. Right after I brush my teeth and get something to drink, I try to stay hydrated. I drink a lot of water. But as I have a bottle of water and I brush my teeth, I get on, I get on the floor and stretch <laughs> every day. And it has paid big, big dividends. I just can't say enough about how important stretching has been and for my quality of life. I agree with that. I got into a, a type of yoga and meditation that's like changed my entire thought process to being one that's much more positive. I have a question about kind of eras changing. Your, your big three, which I think started it in my mind, uh, all of them that happen now started with you guys. And uh, yours was a bit more of an organic thing uh, where you had less agency in that era. Red brought you guys in via draft and trade. 
I was wondering, are there some guys in your era who you really respected that you didn't get a chance to play with? If you could have started your own big three, who, who might you have played with? Oh, that's easy. Magic, Kareem, and Woozy. Oh, Robert, that's a, dang, that's like, a, that's a dangerous I like answer. They, I feel like they were just as good as we were, not better, because I feel like they had the edge in the center, uh, center position because Kareem was a better player than I was. But if I was to start a team, and it didn't include Larry Kevin and myself, it would be Magic, Kareem, and James Worthy. I don't like thinking about Chief and purple and gold riffs. That's a, that's a scary thought. <laughs> oh, man, that, that offense would have been absolutely – I mean, it was already one of the best offenses in the history of the game. Like, it always blows my mind that you literally played in more NBA games that, than anyone that has ever lived. And, you know, Le- LeBron might have a chance to catch you, but if he doesn't, for whatever reason, there's no one that's even really approaching it. Like, do you ever think about just how much – of your life in a good way like that you gave to basketball and, and sort of how much basketball gave to you? Oh, every day. I'm reminded of everything that, everything that I have, everything that I have seen and accomplished, it points directly to basketball. That's not only for me, but for, to my fa- for my family. Uh, I was able to provide a, a better life for my family and, and uh, my significant others. So I... Definitely, when I when I, I almost every day I reflect on what basketball had done for me and and uh, what I got out of it, and, and not to mention because of, of of athletics, I am more in tune to my body. I try to uh, do right by my body because I feel like I did it in injustice because of what I did for a living. Because the human body was meant to take that type of punishment that I put my body through. So I am overly sensitive about what I ingest and how I treat my body because I feel like I abused it from the, from the, from through the lens of I was a professional athlete. Same thing with, with football players, baseball players, any athletes that have had a prolonged career, never going to be the same physically. Now, uh, do you, does the stretching and the, the, the lifestyle changes that you implemented when you were a player, do they help you with the chronic pain of having played basketball for such a long time today? Well, definitely. Uh, only, only issue, only health issues that I have from, 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 my, from being a pro athlete for all those years, I got a temperamental back. I, mm. mean, I was very fortunate, blessed lucky, whatever you want to call it, I never had a substantial injury. The worst injury I ever had was a sprained ankle. So I dodged a bullet in terms of a catastrophic injury. And so, I, as, I, as I said before, uh, nutrition is very important. Exercise is very important. Hydration is very important. Also, weight training is very important. I find that to be uh, significant because it has helped me in terms of my quality of life because as you get older, muscle apathy setting, your mm-hmm. body gets softer, it's harder to maintain firmness, you know, to have that. For me, I, I like a, a, a fit, athletic look 
I don't like to look real muscular, <laughs> but I like to look like I'm in shape, like I take care of myself. And weight training definitely helps in that category. Hey, Robert, not, I don't think many of the uh, the players in today's today's era might have fit in very well back in the 80s when, when you were at the top of your game. But what about Marcus Smart? I think he is one of those guys that I think if we had a time machine, could make that transition and fit in pretty well. Yeah, well, Marcus Smart is, is a uh, – I, I, I look at him and also uh, Russell Westbrook, a throwback to the old to the era when I was bowling because of their mental toughness, uh, how aggressive they are, their approach to the game. Every night. They don't take games off. They don't take nights off. You know, they want Smart and Westbrook are one of the few players that I would spend my money buy a ticket to go watch play. Because I know I'm gonna I'm gonna see I'm gonna get everything that they have to offer from a physical and mental perspective. And I and I like their approach to the game. They respect the game. And I think that's that's one of the reasons why they're gonna go down as two of the better players because I don't think they are really appreciated while they're playing but hopefully when these historians and critics look back on it they'll get their just dudes I agree with that 100% and I think I have one last question for you I found out that you went to the Grateful Dead with Bill Walton some years ago. <laughs> who, 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 are, who are some other artists that you're really into besides that? Who are some musical artists you really enjoy? Well, to be honest, I never was a rock fan. Uh, uh, before uh, I accepted uh, Bill Walter's invitation to go see the Grateful Dead. But another rock group that I uh, like and favor and follow, uh, the Rolling Stones. Ah. Oh, man. I'm because... That's because of my experience when I went to see the Grateful Dead in concert. Then I started paying attention to the Rolling Stones. Were they? Were they? Did they? They weren't opening for the Dead, were they? What, what was it? No, about? no, 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 no. This, this is separate. Like I said, I, ne- I never paid attention to rock music mm-hmm. before I went to their concert because I w- I'm R and B, jazz, <laughs> hip hop, reggae. Fan. I've never been a fan of rock music before I went to see the Grateful Dead. But after that experience, I started paying attention to the Rolling Stones. So those are the two groups. When I think of how my music taste has expanded, I have to give some credit to the Grateful Dead and be a Walter. We're talking a little bit in, in, in this event, too, about, about two Celtics greats that we lost this year. You know, one being Tommy Heinsohn, but we also want to get your your thoughts on Casey Jones, who 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 passed you know shortly after Tommy, and a guy who you played for you know for really the, the height of your career. Could you give us a just a little bit of insight on the, on the man that 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 Casey was and the, sort of the impact that he had on you? Casey is a class act, a gentleman, a man of high character. Plus, he's a winner. He's won on every level: high school, college professional, as a coach, I I have the utmost respect for KC, especially off the court, 
away from sports by the way he carried himself. And I tried to carry myself with the grace and dignity that he carried himself. I kind of I kind of look at him as a role model, even though he never heard it from me. <laughs> but I try to carry myself in that same light and with that same respect and high character that Casey Jones carried himself. And to touch on Tommy Heinsohn, I really didn't know t- Tommy that well, uh, personally or intimately. I just knew he was uh, had blind love for the Celtics. You know, we could do no wrong. So I, I do <laughs> like his, <laughs> his loyalty because he was loyal to a fault when it came to the Celtics. And I always respected that. And they seemed like cool people. Because I just uh, watched him from afar. I never spent any time with him and sit down and, and come, have a conversation with him. But just observing him, he seemed like he was a cool dude. Well, thank you, Robert, so much for your time and uh, the effort to help this cause uh, to raise money for Marcus Smart's foundation. We're really appreciative of your time. Thank you so much. All right, so we're back. Yeah. We're, uh, thanks. Oh, sorry, Riff, but I was just say thanks to Robert and his his thoughts on stretching and the Rolling Stones. We have gone over thirty seven thousand. We have thirty thirty seven thousand and four cents. That extra four cents is really just going to be crucial. It, mean, it means a lot. It, it means a lot. That nice uh, seventeen thousand flat is a little too boring. Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna mix it up seventeen point oh 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 four. I think the math is correct there. Um, thank you to Robert. It was awesome. You like you enjoy that conversation, Riff? Man, he, he put me at ease. Robert's one of my heroes, a guy that I've heard my parents, like my dad talk to me about in that era and so many people like watching those old videos with him and Larry and DJ and and the minute you talk to him, he just puts you at ease and he's the coolest guy you could possibly ever meet. And I'm so thankful to Robert and uh, his insights into his life and, and everything that he had to say. I was going to steer this uh, conversation in kind of a different direction for a few minutes. Uh, Something that kind of permeates the entirety of this NBA season is like the ethical considerations of what happens when a league keeps going during a pandemic and the players become a little bit, I wouldn't say co-opted, but in some ways they function a lot like a frontline worker and they're exposed to a lot of different things in, in traveling throughout this trying period. And I wanted to talk specifically with you guys about what the energy has been like in terms of the atmosphere of the crowds. And I think Sean has a unique insight to this because he's been going to games uh, for a lot of this. And I was just going to kick it off to Sean. What has it felt like to cover NBA games during this? Well, I've now had both experiences with it. So I'm based in Portland and I cover a lot of Blazer games as media. And just this past weekend, the a, a week ago tomorrow, the game against the Lakers last uh, Friday, was the first game of the season that they actually had fans in the building. And it was 10% capacity. The Rose Garden holds about 20,000 people. So it was like maybe 2,000 fans in the arena. Earlier in the season, I mean, they had the piped-in crowd noise and they still did all the game ops stuff. They did all the, like, the you know, the announcer did all the player intros and they had all the music. And it was basically, like, tried to make it feel like a real game. But just the last three games that I've been to at home where they actually had fans in the building, 
even just 2,000 people totally spread out in a 20,000-seat arena to totally spread out for the proper social distancing and all that, the energy is just so different. And even that few amount of fans was louder than the piped-in crowd noise that they had. And it just, I mean, going to the games earlier on in the season when, when, when there were no fans and it was all piped-in crowd noise, it just kind of reinforced that this is, and, you know, I don't want to outright call it a fake season just because obviously the players are putting in real work and everybody's working really hard to not only the players to actually play hard, even though they have this kind of weird compressed schedule, but also a lot of people in the league office have worked hard to make this thing happen, but it's kind of a fake season. Let's be honest. The Lakers championship fake season, the Celtics fading out of contention, maybe in the play, the play in playing game fake season we will start reality starts sure. again next year well the old the, the ultimate fake season team i think has been the tampa bay devil raptors <laughs> yeah having to play their having to play your whole like at least mo- most play most teams even though you know it's it's you know they have all these restrictions on what they can and can't do when they're on the road and you know them not having fans in some of the arenas or having limited capacity most of the teams at least get 36 home games in their own arenas and they get to sleep in their own beds in their cities. The Raptors players have had to play their quote unquote home games in Tampa. And they basically had, they basically had 72 road games and they've had to just like, you know, sit, be in, living out of a hotel for the entire season because they couldn't even, you know, because of the border stuff and, you know, because Canada is not doing great with COVID. Like there was just all this other stuff that just goes into it. Like if, if there's any team that can claim a fake season, I think it's them. No, I'm going to, I'm going to say a lot of my notoriety was about making lighthearted jokes about things that happen within the game that aren't even about the game. Right. When, when things started to unfold with, with the wizards, when they got sick and it started mm-hmm. to get other teams sick. And when, when Toronto started to get sick, something hit home for me that we need to really kind of, change our ethical considerations of how we talk about the game of basketball and how we approach it um this this season it just feels like because so much of the human element has been taken out of it i think the fans being out of the stands takes the human element out of it i think the coverage of these guys without having a little bit of empathy and a little bit of humanity for the ups and downs of it with really no practice no rest a condensed schedule i think i think we we need to take this as a point to really think about how we're covering NBA basketball. Rich, you were involved in covering the NBA. How, how have you viewed this season and how have you viewed it in terms of the things you've seen in your career and just watching basketball in general? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I me mean, covering the NBA on a day-to-day basis, I mean, it wasn't, for, it wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I love, I mean, there's so many of my good friends who cover the league and I like, I respect the hell of, of, out of what they do. For me, it just never quite. And, and again, I think because I, I I felt a lot of the things that you're talking about. You know, Sean, I I think it was Sean sort of compared the players to sort of frontline workers. That but, was I mean, Ryan, actually, but yeah, yeah. Ryan, they are uh, the only frontline workers that are consistently criticized. You would you would call quitters in the in, in the public arena, right? They, that would face that sort of, over a game, over a game. And I think that is what kind of got to me on a day to day basis it made it harder for me to, to, to do it. And now I think this year, especially like, like, like you said, it was hard, man. And, and that's why I'm so happy that we're doing this and that, and, and we did this to try to bring some of this positivity in because I haven't even been able to go on, go on Twitter in like a year. I don't, I, I can't, 
I can't watch the games and and look at the discourse and feel good about it, right? Like I, it's it's one I just had to start logging off. But I think this and, and rips. This is why you are who you are and why you can send out a tweet and we can raise almost forty thousand dollars in in a couple of days. Because no matter what you're going through personally, I feel like you're always lifting. You're always lifting people up, and and that's what 100%. we need to do more of. And I think that's what an event like this can do. And uh, we're doing it. I mean, it, it feels good. I keep saying it's crazy to think about. You know, it was like the end of April when we had that first direct message exchange. But hey, can we do this? But how can we pull this off? And now here, almost forty thousand dollars later, it feels it feels great. And as part of that, I, what do you think? Should we transition into our into our next interview? We can pick up this yeah, conversation then, on the other side. Yeah, I want to. I want to just say a few things. Uh, I think I think this is great more what the community has done is great and what the, the former players and Marcus and their camp uh, to come together with us is just fantastic to me. And uh, whether we like it or not in the coverage of this game and in life in general, things like social media and technology are just like, they're going to be, I mean, they're obviously here to stay. And the, the, I, I just think in, in terms of how we treat each other, uh, we can't we can't lose our humanity in it, and we can't uh, start taking our days out on people when we log in so much. I think it's been really easy to do in the pandemic. I think it's been easy to do this season where it's been just frustrating for people. A lot of people have problems in their life, and uh, and they watch basketball, and that's like one of their only outlets. And I think uh, I think every time we log in, or anytime we just deal with people in general, if, if we just try to be a little bit better to one another. I think the world is going to be a much better place. And I think this drive is very self-evident that people want to do some good things to uplift people in the community and uplift NBA players too, because they've been going through it just like anybody else, if not more so with all their travel. And, uh, and from that, I'd like to transition into something much more lighthearted, much more fun. A man who's uh, traveled a lot though. <laughs> a, man, a man with a great many travels who is to me, just an icon in terms of the international game and revolutionizing that. Uh, one of the coolest Celtics players of all time. Everybody I know when they talk about like cult favorites, this guy is number one. He's a basketball Hall of Famer. He's a member of some of the greatest international teams of all time. And he's a guy who was so genuinely kind and cool. His name is Dino Raja. We love him. And this is an interview we have with Dino. So let it roll. If it's cool, I was just gonna ask questions about your career and in your life. Uh, I'm I'm just such a huge fan of you and in the different teams you've played on internationally. Uh, you're one of the guys who, who who made the transition and was incredibly successful and became an all-star. And I think you've you've revolutionized the game and laying that groundwork for so many players today to make the the transition and be successful. How was that transition to the NBA for you? It was definitely you know unknown world back then because uh, you know today you have these highlights five minutes after the game you can see whatever you want whatever you are interested in you just click and you you can see it in, in, in you know in 4k 8k 27,000 k's whatever you want back then it was all written in newspapers and no videos I didn't know how Magic Johnson looked like uh, until he was almost retired um, so it was, you know, uh, 
pretty much uh, going from being a superstar in Europe uh, to being an all-star and winning the championships and all that stuff, going to NBA and carry the bags. You you go, you start to build your your career from zero, and um, it was. Uh, you know, very skeptical um, environment toward uh, non-American players. Uh, they are soft. They can do this. They can do that. And um, you know, even even going there and try to prove people wrong, it was a huge, huge uh, you know accomplishment. And um, you know, I, I remember you know big difference like between today and, and back then when um, Doncic fears ago came to, to, to Dallas they gave him you know the keys of the city and uh, when I came to Boston they gave me the bag with the used uh, jerseys to bring them for washing and um, but you know that's it that's that uh, it was a very very a huge step for me, not just for me, it was a uh, few players, you know, Drajan, Tony, Divac, uh, Sabonis, uh, who, who made the impact in, in NBA in the 90s. And um, for me, it's, uh, you know, a great honor to be one of the pioneers um, to discover America and uh, America to discover us. And um, very much, you know, proud of all that generation that um, that made the dream team possible. And um, for me, it's um, it's huge. Who was your uh, your favorite teammate to play with on the Celtics? Was there a guy you clicked with instantly, or just had really good chemistry with? I I love I I love my teammates. Uh, I I love to play with D Brown. He is. Uh, <clears throat> He's an you know, extremely athletic, uh, unselfish guy. Uh, I love playing with him. I love playing with Chief. You know, I learned so much. Uh, you know, from Chief uh, for that first year. You know, I, I will never uh, forget. Like uh, we play a game. You know, you hit the rookie wall, of course, like everybody else. And I had one game uh, scoring zero points. The only game that I remember in my whole life that I scored zero points and shooting like 0 for 14. And um, I'm, I have a stat sheet. You know, back then it was all paper, not, not like today. So I'm holding the stat sheet in my hands in the locker room after the game, all sad. And he comes to me laughing and says, ha, oh, 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 welcome to NBA. Tomorrow is a new game. <laughs> oh. It rips. Dino has a great story from his first NBA game. What happened when you were going to the Garden for that Knicks game? It's uh, it's uh, also it, if I can show you guys now, I have I have a goosebumps. Really, every time I, I think of that uh, moment, it's uh, it's one of the most special moments in my career. Not not regarding you know the moment when some game ends when when you win something. Uh, you know, you're about to enter the game in, in historic Boston Garden where Havlicek stole the ball and you are a kid from, um, you know, city of 200,000 people and uh, you come to one of the one of two most famous franchises in the whole world, the Celtics, and you enter the game where all this history happened. You look at these banners up and uh, 
retired numbers and uh, uh, coach call your name and say get in and all this mixed feelings and then thoughts rush in your head uh, and you feel just unbelievable like that, that's the feeling that that, that uh, I will never forget and then you know the moment you enter the game you know you focus on the game and but you didn't you almost didn't, didn't you almost miss the game in traffic on the way there almost, <laughs> uh, almost. yeah it was also another interesting story I live in uh, Devonshire building down downtown which was pretty close to to the garden but uh, you know Friday the rain and I guess something happened some car accident or something everything was blocked so I exit my building I did maybe a couple of blocks and uh, in the middle of the uh, crossroads a huge crossroads I just sit for like uh, you know half an hour and I need five minutes to, to arrive to arena I, I left early and everything but I was sitting in the middle of the crossroads for like um, half an hour and I figured out I will not make it to the game. So I called my wife and I said, listen, I'm leaving you in the car, running the car, key in the car and I'm gone. Car cannot go anywhere. So I run to the garden and, and, and I, I made it in time and she picked up the car and, and brought it back home. Now, this is a, a non-basketball question and something I was really curious about. I saw you at a guitar festival. I was wondering, do you have any involvement in music? Are you a musician or are you just a huge fan in general of guitars? No, it's just my hobby. I, uh, I started playing guitar uh, like seven, eight years ago. And it's, uh, it's one of my different hobbies that uh, I started doing after I finished with the basketball. I started, you know, skiing, diving, motorcycling doing this stuff that i couldn't do by the contract and uh, the newest one is playing guitar so um, uh, it's, it's so much fun who are your favorite artists and musicians oh acdc that definitely <laughs> awesome i'm a big angus right. young fan myself I'm, I'm, I'm rock and roll generation oh i i've, I've never I, i've never grown out of rock and roll man <laughs> And I have, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, one last question: uh, Do you have any great Tommy Heinsohn stories? We lost Tommy in the last year. I was wondering what his impact and when you got to the league, how how he was when you met him. Uh, he was <clears throat> he was a great guy, um, really. You know, um, I know Tommy for thirty years already. Uh, and he will never, he will never die because, you know, I have so many tapes from my career and every time you hear, you, you see the tape, you see the game, you hear Tommy's voice behind. And uh, I used to sit with him even, even privately. Uh, we, we went out a few times with him and he's also late, uh, late wife. And he gave me all kind of advices. He liked my game and uh, I had a great relationship with him. Even, you know, when I come to Boston after to visit, uh, I, I go to, to the garden to see him. He was a great guy, great, great guy. Being in airplane with us all the time, traveling with us all the time. And, uh, you know, he was you know, an example of the person. 
Dino, any thoughts on, on Marcus Smart? We're, we're here, we're raising money for Marcus Smart's uh, foundation. That's part of the reason we got everyone together here. So as a, a former Celtic, what do you think of him? I know, I, I, I follow Celtics uh, pretty much, you know, on a daily basis, uh, how they're playing, what are they doing. And he's kind of the player that uh, every team loves, not likes, loves, because he's the one that uh, maybe maybe not, not the greatest talent, but huge heart and, um, uh, you know, heavy grinder and the guy who you can depend on. He can, you know, guard anybody from one to five and uh, he can, you know, change the game. He can hit from outside, but basically he has a huge heart and that's the guy that... Uh, basically everybody uh, loves in their team and everybody is following. Well, Dina, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, you're always going to be a fan favorite. Just like, just like you said, Tommy's always with us. Your, your energy and what you brought to the game is always with us. And we're so grateful for that. I love Boston. I really, really, truly love Boston. Every time I land in Boston, I have a smile on my face and it's not something that you can fake. It's just there. And we're back. It's the risk, man. We're here with Rich. We're here with Sean. We're still moving and grooving in this thing. Uh, in the spirit of Sam and Derek, uh, thank you to them for their picks. Yeah, check out their podcast. Uh, we're going to be doing our own picks. We're going to be doing MVP, uh, Defensive Player of the Year, Coach of the Year, and then our finals uh, matchup and our finals picks. I'm going to throw it to Sean first with his selections. So for MVP, I think it's pretty obvious that it's Jokic. But, and then, I mean, if, if, if I had a hypothetical ballot, and I don't actually have a vote, but I would kind of go, you know, I guess Jokic and then probably MB, Giannis, and Chris Paul, I think, could be in the mix with just how much better Phoenix got when he got there. Uh, and then whichever of, you know, Steph, Dane, Luca, whichever, whichever of those guys you want to throw in there, probably just whoever ends up. But I think it's pretty clear that Jokic is going gonna, is gonna to win it, and I think he probably should win it. Yeah, that's, then, a, that, that's an easy one for me too, yeah. Sean. I just think that to lose Murray the way they did and not really fall off all too much, right? like that's where you just need not only are you physically going to be the leader every single night, but you got to carry everything at that point. Mm -hmm. like that, that, and yeah. granted, Porter stepped up a little bit but like that was that was the true test like if you can keep these guys these guys rolling when you lose murray the way you did and he did he's done it so and he's also just he plus also played just about every game if you want to look at the other guys who are kind of in the running whether it's uh mb or whoever like those guys have all missed time Jokic has basically played the whole season that especially like i don't want to hold that against guys in this season because it's kind of you know because of the, just the unprecedented nature of the schedule and the pandemic but it's to his credit that he has played basically the whole season. Now, uh, for me, it's an interesting conversation because I think we, we do get into group thing a little bit. I think, I think Jokic is the clear pick. And I say that I think the best player I saw play against the Celtics this year and the most stoppable was Joel Embiid. He obviously has had the injury issues after, I mean, the, the fall he took against uh, the Lakers and such. But uh, I think, I think Jokic, and Embiid are equally good players in different ways. I think they have about the same value in terms of like the construct of basketball and what they bring on both ends. I think their value is pretty close 
to approximating one another. But I think Jokic, oftentimes when we do the MVP discussion, it goes to the player who was pretty good last year but didn't have his good teammates, and then they get more good teammates. And Embiid did get that. He got guys like Danny Green. Uh, Tobias has had a career resurgence. I think Tyrese Maxey was a very excellent pick for them. Upgrade and coach, they, too. That's the other thing. And, and general manager. Well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Everything got better around Embiid, and I think the quality, not to be dismissive of the players around Jokic because they're very good, but I think the, the quality of their roster degraded just a little bit. And I think in that he's also elevated his game as a scorer in ways I don't think anybody ever was going to expect of him from a, an aggression standpoint. And also he did it with a shorter offseason, and we've seen a lot of teams that had short offseasons who were in the bubble fall off a lot in the mm-hmm. hard. And I think he just stepped it up to a new level with his conditioning, uh, with his scoring, and and with really everything. His leadership has been sensational. And he's quietly become a very good team defender. And that's something that you, that you can't overlook with Nikola. And this goes with, to what you said about uh, Embiid and his supporting cast. And this isn't his fault by any means, but if you're talking about potential tiebreakers in the MVP race, the fact that the Sixers kind of didn't skip a beat and kicked a lot of ass when Embiid was hurt, Mm-hmm. Like if 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 Jokic goes down, Denver's not not doing what Philly did without Embiid. Especially now that Jamal Murray's also out, right? Yeah. And I think I think and I, I mean that's not just I think Denver's a very good team. I think we've seen MPJ get a lot better. I think the Aaron Gordon move. I really like Aaron Gordon in that yeah. situation as a cutter. I think those two as cutters uh, puts them in their best possible scenario as basketball players. And, uh, but I think if you think about it, I mean, nobody else is going to be able to hit cutters like Nikola Jokic, and he's just really a maestro in a way that we've never seen. Do you think that, do you think that the dialogue nationally around Jokic is doing a disservice to just how good and revolutionary he is at the game of basketball? Because we've, we've seen very few centers this talented as an offensive uh, hub. Uh, do you what do you mean specifically the con- by the dialogue around him nationally? Oh, it just seems insane, like, that this is the worst MVP ever, that this is just a joke MVP. I don't think so at all. I think he's one of the greatest players of all time. I think that there are some people that vote on MVP that see it as them marking what a player's historical significance is going to be. And a lot of them feel as though, you know, I mean, obviously he's totally out of the mix now because he missed too many games. But I think a lot of, before he missed as many games as he missed, I think a lot of the voters, at least some of the national ones, uh, felt like it was kind of their duty to give it to LeBron because LeBron only has four MVPs and people feel like he should have more. I feel like with Jokic, there isn't really that historical thing you can point to that say that says like when he when we write the NBA history. I mean, I think I I, under, I mean obviously that that thing that 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 the Nick Wright thing last week. I think everybody kind of got mad at. It. I think I think I kind of understand what he was trying to say. I don't agree with it, but I kind of understand what he was trying to say. I think what he was kind of trying to get at there is that some of these players were going to look back at historically and be like, oh, like it, it, it's, it's going to be a thing of like, oh, well, like how did Kobe only have one MVP? How did Shaq only have one MVP? And because Jokic, A, plays in a small market, B, 
isn't really, you know, even not as much as a guy like Damian Lillard, who like, yeah, Portland's also a small market, but Dame, you know, is in commercials and has a rap career and kind of has all this other media stuff going on that he does. People connect to him more. Jokic is just kind of a dude who's really good at, who's just incredible at basketball and is probably the most talented center that we've seen in the game since, God, I don't know, like peak, like since like Shaq or something. Just in terms of like like his skill set, like he's kind of a throwback to like a you know Wes Unsell, like Bill Walton type of just incredible passer. But like, go, yeah. well, right, and then Wes Unsell as well. But like, all of like he has he's an incredible player, but he doesn't have that like kids aren't buying Nikola Jokic jerseys, and I feel like that's and I mean to me that doesn't matter. I think you know if I had to vote today on MVP, and again I don't actually have a vote. If I had to vote on MVP, I would vote for him without even really thinking about it, but. I think for a lot of the voters who kind of approach this, I mean, you saw this conversation last year in the bubble where there were people making the argument that LeBron, I mean, to me, it was clearly Giannis last year, but there were people making the argument that, you know, for narrative reasons, and some voters have even actually said this outright, that for narrative reasons, they kind of wanted to give it to LeBron. And I think if Jokic has one thing that has maybe hurt him in the national discourse. It's that he doesn't really have any of that going for him because he's not really a magnetic personality the way that some of these other guys are. I don't think that should factor into it, but I think there are a lot of people who that does factor in. And I'll say a lot of the people that were probably voting LeBron for narrative reasons are the same people you'll probably find breaking clutch client news. A little bit, (laughs) yes. I would agree with that. Well, I mean, you know. It could be narrative slash professional, uh, you know. Perks. Hey, you 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 said it, not me. <laughs> I. Yeah, and then listen, when it comes to, to dialogue around jo- Joker, like some people are just going to complain. Some people, some people always have to hate. Google Seinfeld sucks. Like the most successful show of all time will be plenty of hits. Do Prince sucks, right? <laughs> there are probably entire blogs talking about how much Prince sucks. There are just going to be people out there, and again, that's that's what we're doing here. We're 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 to- we're tuning out the negativity. We're pushing the positivity. We're saying that Nikola Jokic is one of the most beautiful and talented basketball players that we have seen in some time. There are very few experiences better than watching him play an NBA game. For me, he remind. I didn't get to see it. I got to see the late era of it in terms of highlights and some as a kid. And Sean will be able to attest. But I think if if Arvidas Sabonis had been able to play the bulk of his career in the NBA, yeah. I think that's really what Jokic is is embodying with his play right now. Yeah, was- if he if Arvidas Sabonis had actually been in the NBA when he was drafted, like the late eighties, early nineties, he didn't come over to the NBA until I believe ninety five or ninety six. And he still had a couple of really good years in Portland, but he was kind of he was kind of washed up by pretty quickly by the time he actually got over here. But yeah, that's kind of that or like, you know, a, a, you know, a Bill Walton or a Wes Unsell, if you want to talk about great passing big men of that Chris Weber, like that, that type of, that type of game. That's kind of the closest comparison to to Jokic right now. The thing I like about, about Joker and it, it was uh, Paul Pierce just jumps to my mind as another guy who you could classify under this, uh, is because he doesn't rely to at all on speed and athleticism. Right. It's the kind of game that ages pretty well, especially yeah. when he can shoot the way he can. Yeah, I mean he's gonna he's gonna be really good until like in, in, into his late thirties if he wants to. I mean, who knows if he even is gonna want to play that long? That's 
the thing that's kind of the wild card with him is I don't know if he's the kind of guy who's going to want to play until he's and, and you know until he's 40 he might just after after this contract he might just be like you know what I've made 100 whatever million dollars I you know I'm going to go in the hall of fame I might just go back to Serbia and ride horses I'm done we just All we don't power. know because he's so enigmatic like he just is so I mean I actually do like I actually kind of like his personality it's kind of a dry sense of humor that I think a lot of people don't realize that he has but I don't get the sense that this is his entire life I feel, I feel like he's gonna you know at a certain point he's just gonna be like you know what i don't want to do this anymore and then just bounce basketball writers hate that too a lot they of do i i mean i would I, re- I would respect it immensely if he decided to do that but for guys who who don't live and breathe basketball every second of their <laughs> life they become the enemy eventually so i hope i hope they can take it easy on joker i've always found it refreshing uh and that's not to dismiss their work but i think like like people who are interesting to me are like Kyrie Irving and Jalen Brown and people like that who have varied interests. Chris Bosh, even though he's not playing anymore. Chris Chris Bosh is a guy who who really changed my understanding of basketball, and I think we should embrace these guys who are who are doing a bunch of different things too. And uh, and someone who is like that, who we got to talk to, <laughs> and someone who is also his career took him into the international game and he learned a lot of things and was on kind of the cusp of a wave of international play that came over. Uh, his career intersected with that. Uh, AC Earl is a guy we get to talk to who was just incredibly interesting and generous with his time. And we have an interview with AC and now we're going to let it roll. Uh, so, so here, here's, here, here's our first question for you. When, when you think back all, 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 all these years on your, your NBA experience, you know, we'll start with your Celtics experience. Okay. Is there a moment that jumps out still? And I know you, it was two seasons in Boston. Was there like a, you know, a welcome to the Celtics moment? Or was there one that just sticks out for you? Um, yeah, there was a lot of moments. Um, you know, obviously, uh, like meeting Red Auerbach, you know, for the first time, a couple times. Um, you know, he wasn't around all the time, but I think my first year, maybe four or five times. So, I mean, the legendary Red Arback, I mean, that's that's being a Celtic in itself, you know. Um, obviously, uh, seeing some of the older guys like um, Kuzi and Heidson, like they did radio and TV. And then, um, uh, like, who else came around? Larry Bird would come around. He was a scout. Uh, Jerry Seastein did radio. Um, ML Carr was community relations. Dennis Johnson was an assistant. Chris Ford was the head coach. So like growing up, like I seen, like I seen, I knew about all this stuff. And so it was like, that's all now coming. Like, like, wow. Like, it's your life. Celtic. Yeah. So, and then, and then playing with Robert Parrish. I mean, that's like, okay. So, it you know it it was there it was you know it was there that have the check and those guys would come like once a year like in the in the in the uh, in the vet camp right they would come and um and hang around but yeah that was um that was a surreal moment I'd like to ask you about the uh, process of going through an expansion draft. That took your career uh, to another location. What was it like to go through the expansion draft process? Well, it was. Um, you're right. It, it it really put a put a, a. It really it really was for the better for me, 
because like my first year I played 79 games and the second year I played um, like 32 games or uh, something like that, maybe 40 games, but it wasn't a lot, you know, it was a drastic change, you know, and they were going to go with Eric Montross as the starter. And, um, and I was trying to talk to ML Carr. ML Carr had took over as GM, but he didn't really, I wouldn't say he, I wouldn't know what he, I wouldn't say he didn't know what he was doing, but he just didn't, I guess, communicate effectively at the, at the time. And so he didn't tell me I was going in the expansion draft. So, um, I heard from John Sally, like the last game we played my regular, my first year in Miami, John Sally goes, I'll see you in Toronto. And I said, what are you talking about? He goes, you'll see. So, um, he was going on the expansion draft, and so was yeah. We both got drafted to Toronto, and so that was a very unique experience as well. But yeah, that changed my trajectory, uh, like I said, for the better. So, I don't, I don't know if we want to call it uh, revenge, but you did get a little bit of payback. Oh yeah. So oh you, yeah. you, you, you know, you know exactly what I'm talking about because that is, I find it so cool that that next year you go to Toronto. It's a sort of lazy game towards the end of the year in April. The Raptors are are in Boston, the Boston Garden. You get the star. You drop forty points mm-hmm. on the team that left you unprotected. Mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. the highlight of, of your NBA career when you when you look back at it right uh, now? You... Well, it 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 is to a certain extent, but that whole week I averaged like twenty eight. I noticed so that. Like, yeah. Yeah. So we were on a road trip. We was the last eight or nine games of the season, and so I think we started in Milwaukee or somewhere Detroit, and I had like. Um, like 15 to 16 points, but I missed some easy shots and I missed some free throws. And my dad was like, oh, Ace, like, um, you know, you're right there. Then the next game I had like 22 and I missed some free throws and some easy shots. My dad said, you just put it all together. You're going to have a big game. And that was the Boston game. And then after that, I had like 28 against the Knicks and then 30 against Nets and Sean Bradley. And then like 30 against Washington with uh, George Mirasan and those guys. And so it was like a whole week. And Ewing um, on the Knicks, right? That's Yeah, the, Ewing yes. with the Knicks. <laughs> at and, MSG. Yeah, at, at, yeah, all these games were on the road. So it was all road games. And so um, I, I almost got player of the week. Uh, I lost out to Chris Childs. So. Uh, that's impressive. And what's it feel like to have a stretch like that at the top level? And that's something that can stick with your intern, and especially where, like, you know, you only played, I think, a year or two after that. But to have that knowledge, whether it's then or now, that you dominated at the top level in the world, like, what else do you need as a basketball player? Yeah, I mean, it was it was kind of like a culmination of all the work. Like, I I played early in Toronto, and then I didn't play for a little while, but I still came and got my work done. I was around some good veterans and they said, Hey, just keep your, you know, you never know, stay in shape. And the guys got hurt in the end. And then I ended up playing a lot and I was ready, you know, I was ready for that opportunity. So, I mean, I always had that as my back, kind of in my hip pocket that, Hey, I did that. I could do it against, I could play against the top players in the NBA and do well. And, and I did it. Now your career takes you into the international game. And we spoke to Dino Raja, who's kind of like an international basketball icon. Uh, oh, yeah. And, yeah. And, uh, and your play takes you over to these places in almost kind of an opposite direction, but it seems like you learn a ton 
as you go over to the international game. What did you take away from that experience and what kind yeah, of knowledge well, have you implemented? Funny. So yeah, that? so me and Dino were rookies together, even though he got drafted earlier and came over, but we were rookies together and we really took care of each other. We were really close. Um, and, um, and, and I got the respect of Dino very early because I played hard, I worked out and I took the game serious. And he used to tell me all the time, like, oh, you'd be good overseas. You'd be good overseas. And I'm like, well, I don't want to go overseas, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so it was funny. The first, um, you know, I bounced around overseas for a little bit. But my first steady job was in Paris for his old coach. And so, so I'm playing for Paris, uh, PSG, Paris Saint-Germain, you know, their famous soccer team. We pull up to the arena the practice arena and there's a black Mercedes uh, sitting out front and I'm looking at the Mercedes and I go, that looks familiar. That's Dino's Mercedes. Cause it had like little scratches on it and it had a couple dents, you know, it was like a typical European looking like taxi looking Mercedes. And I go, that's Dino's. But I said, why would Dino be here? Dino's in Greece playing. I knew Dino's playing in Greece at the time. So, you know, I go through practice, I talk to the coach. And so as I'm talking to the coach, he said, here, here's the phone. So on the phone is Dino. And so he's talking to Dino about me. And so he was like, hey, work hard. I set it up for you, just do whatever. And then at the end of the conversation, I said, why is your car out here? He goes, I gave him the car. I gave the coach my car. <laughs> so that was like hilarious. What a so guy, I, huh? He's a great yeah. guy. Hey, here's a car. Here's a 600 Mercedes SEL. Yeah, just have it. So, um, yeah. So it was, it was, it was funny. But uh, uh, yeah. But it, so overseas went well for me. I, I got uh, three MVPs in eight years, and I won two championships over there. So, um, you know, I, I just probably because I took the game serious. I had a good work ethic. You know, I think Boston taught us that like be around the veterans, take the game serious. Um, so it was, uh, it was, you know, it was cool. I mean, I, it, it was a way, I was away from my family. That was hard, but, um, but I was really fortunate to play top level basketball. We can see the sign behind you. It says, uh, it says in class with professor Earl. Mm -hmm. uh, are you, and we know you, you coach a bunch and you, you've written books, right? You put out videos. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and is, are you are you a teacher as well, or is well, that? Well, yeah, is that... I, I taught at the University of Iowa for seven years up until COVID. So um, I actually created two coaching classes and an agent player professionalism class, and I actually ri have written uh, eight books. And so, if you give me a second here, my latest book is uh, my latest book is can't barely see it, but is a textbook that me and my brother and another doctor created for a coaching class. And so we have this book that can get you certified. And then uh, one of my other books that I did is, uh, is uh, how to create a uh, college athlete. So that was a really good book too, as well. That, uh, but I have eight, they're all on Amazon. If you Google AC Euro books and uh, they're on my website, venomsportstraining.com. So yeah. Um, I like to write and like to do camps and training. That's kind of my my uh, my two hobbies. All right, now we we can't let you go without asking you one more question about Moon Ooh. Zero Moon Zero Three. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> the 
so we're, we're doing some research on ACRL before the interview and we stumble down this sci-fi rabbit hole. So you, you've yes. been, it's been a little while, but for, for a period of time, you were, you were churning out like in-depth sci-fi movies. Is well, it wasn't true? me. It's, it's one of those things like when you have a buddy or you know a guy and he's a kind of a cool guy and he says, hey, will you be in a movie? And you're like, yeah, sure. Knowing full well that he's not going to make a movie. <laughs> so what did he do? <laughs> he made three movies. And so my character was Fast Horse, which was like a, um, like a Jabba the Hutt guy. So, but a nice Jabba the Hutt guy, like a Jabba the Hutt guy who was a helper. And so um, I didn't get a female to, 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 to tie up next to me. So uh, that was, <laughs> <laughs> but maybe that was probably good that, that that did happen, but. Um, yeah, so he, he put it out and it was like an underground hit around Iowa City. So like I go different places and people be like, hey, man, I saw that movie like you were great. So it was harder than what I thought because I had lines and I had to rehearse the lines. And so I rehearsed the lines. And so, um, you know, it's good, though. A, a sci-fi movie's good because it has a plot kind of and it has a, act, you know, it has emotion the way it's going. So I didn't have to rehearse too much because once you, you they asked you the questions, you kind of knew what was going to go on. So, so yeah. Great. That's awesome. Riff, do you have any, anything else in, in closing with, with AC? In looking back on your skills, the the NBA game and the game in general have changed a bunch. Did you have any skills oh, yeah. that you didn't think uh, – that you know you had that weren't utilized in the context. Oh of the yeah, game. like I could shoot the three. Like at Iowa, when we were playing, the big guys could shoot the three. Like Brad Lowhouse had played for Iowa and set the three point play, set and played for Boston. He set a three point record in Milwaukee, mm -hmm. uh, and shoot the three in in uh, in in Boston. So I mean, I could shoot the three. I could shoot, you know, pretty much from outside. Um, I had passing skills, forward skills. Um, all that I grew up from, you know, growing Magic Johnson, watching Magic Johnson. So I had those skills, but the way that the game was being played, it was still in that eighties, nineties, where they wanted the lumbering center and the close, close to the basket. And that was the most, uh, you know, the most highest percentage shot. So I didn't get a chance to do those things in Toronto. I did a little bit, mm -hmm. you know, Milwaukee, not so much. And then when I went overseas, it was easy for me to play overseas because I could do those things and they were bringing that out like that's what the the younger players and that's what they were doing like they would work on shooting and shooting in the morning shoot weightlifting and shooting in the morning and then practice at night so skills wasn't a problem for me it was you know that's why I was able to play at a high level for eight years over there because I could do so many things you know and, and I was able to get to it win two MVPs over there cool well AC we, we're so grateful for your time Thank yes. you so much for, for, for joining us on here today. All right. Thank you. Appreciate right. it. Thank you, AC. Good luck to everybody. Yep. Sure, sure. All Take right. care. We're, we're nearing the tail end of this. Rich, what are your thoughts on what we were able to accomplish? And where are we at financially right now in our fundraiser? We are at, hold on, let me, uh, let me refresh it just to get the most up-to-date number. So with your, oh, you know what's interesting is that your your original 20K, that went, it was a little bit over 20K, right? Because was it like, was it 20, was it like 21, 28, 21, 28. So, yeah. so, so we're at, we're, we're, we're pretty much at $38,000. Yeah. 
that's absolutely insane. Yeah. I thought we were gonna get like five. <laughs> Dude, we originally said like we were calling it. It was a Tom, people's Tommy Point driver eighteen. We were like, okay, should we maybe shoot for eighteen thousand dollars? That kind of works with the with the name, and we were, we were kind of afraid to say it. That seemed like a lot, and you guys have literally doubled it in the first I, five, five the hour. I think you have that. It's really humbling to have been a part of this uh, with everybody. There's so many people I want to thank. Uh, Rich, I mean, is the point man on this. He got so many people involved. All of the players that we got involved, Kenny, Marcus, uh, basically everything is because of Rich and, and his knowledge of just the community. And that was incredible that he's, he had the vision for this. I want to thank Sean specifically for giving me any sort of platform. You know what I mean? Uh, he's been a great friend to me so for so long. And, uh, and Eric as well is just one of the coolest people. I want to th- there's just a lot of people I want to thank in general. Efren is the most talented dude in this, like point yeah, blank period. Yeah, shout out to shout out to Efren. He, you know, he's been behind you haven't seen him on camera. He's been behind the scenes. He's been making this whole thing happen, doing the transitions. We had the early technical difficulties and he was the one that was like, okay, I know how to fix this. We're gonna we're gonna make this work. We had, we had the idea, we had big dreams of how to do this. We had absolutely zero clue how to pull any of it off. We brought Efren in and it just it just started coming together. We uh, we, we just sent him files. We didn't know what was going on, but it's it's turned into what, what everyone has been able to watch tonight. So amazing work. There's so many other people I wanna to thank too. I wanna I wanna thank the groups guy, Jake. He's provided the music for us tonight. He's a sensational drummer and keyboardist and just an overall great dude. I want to thank Ellie Kane, uh, Nifo Vasai, at Nifo Vasai on uh, Twitter.com. She provided for us some of the beautiful prints in Marcus Smart that we auctioned off to uh, some people on the timeline, and that's incredible. Uh, I want to thank Tom and Nicole for helping publicize this. I want to thank everybody at Celtics Wire. I want to thank, uh, you know, everybody at Celtics Blog. Ryan Berner, Donnie Dangercart, who, who matched up to $500 in donations today, and that was just incredible. Our friend Nelson donated $1,000 to this, to Young Game Changer, and that blew me away. I couldn't believe that anybody, I thought, I thought we were going to get to $5,000 maybe, so to see somebody knock out a fifth of that in one turn was just incredible. Uh, and some of the, you know, the guy, the guy said uh, that there was a one guy who, who donated $500 that you know the name who said though he said because you had you helped him make friends in life yeah you you have brought people into his life the rich man is just such a positive force in no online and that's and that's why when he asked me to do this immediately i was just like yeah man whatever you need i'm here it's cool i'm i'm you know the whole like the whole impetus when i was posting was like i was laid up like a lot of people know this i was crippled for a while and I had nothing else that I could do, and I just started tweeting about basketball, and it became this insane thing <laughs> that I did, and got known for whatever in a small way. But I think most importantly is like if we can connect people, that's the best thing. Connect people in terms of like mutual aid. You in the background of Celtics Twitter, you've helped people out with funerals and medical bills and stuff like that, and that's like, like to me, that's more important than any sort of cloud or any bullshit like that. You know what I mean? so uh, I'm thankful for that and I'm thankful just for everybody involved in this and there's so many more people but uh, I just especially Rich and 
the Young Game Changer Foundation uh, has worked with us so beautifully, and they were so gracious about all of this in getting Marcus on. And it's about Marcus tonight, but I think the community support thrown at him was the main thing that blew, blew me away. So I yeah. want to thank everybody who donated, everybody involved with this. Let's keep the train rolling. I think we can do a lot of positive with our community. 